please, ma'am. I just want you to lab me. I just need it, ma'am. I'm I'm such I'm just a tiny little toad. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is comedian Tim Platt, currently a cast member on the popular D&D podcast Rude Tales of Magic. He is here to speak with me today about a classic 60s villain created by Stanley and Jack Kirby, Mortimer Toynbee, the sniveling toad. Tim, how are you today? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. But thank you for having me, Connor. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I've wanted to... Oh, that sounds weird. I've wanted to have you for some time <laughs> because for those of you who are not up on the ever-expanding Connor Goldsmith Cinematic Universe, Tim and I went to college together. Mm-hmm. So I've known Tim for, oh God, 15 years almost. Yeah. That's... Well- extremely distressing to think about (laughs) yeah but that is that is the case tim and i were in the same freshman dorm at oberlin back Mm -hmm. in the day so we uh we go we go pretty far back and one of the first things we ever talked about was the x-men yeah i i I do think you were one of the first as someone who was like into the x-men for most of his life but more specifically reading the comics in high school you were the first person who i talked to with like I remember being blown away because you had takes on the X-Men about the character arcs, about the characters themselves in a really thoughtful way, also in a really academic way they hadn't experienced before. And we're like referencing writers and artists, referencing the past with these characters, referencing where they were going in a way where me and my friends were just like, yeah, these characters are cool. We love them. Right. Like, I, like the, <laughs> I like that guy. I like that guy. And I remember talking to you about Madeline Pryor and you having a super strong as opinion, everyone, oh, you right? No, yes, opinion. right. And be, and I remember being like, "Oh, I mean, I remember having this be like, I mean, yeah, that's that's a great point. I can't believe someone is as someone being smart about cares this about this, right? Yeah, has thought about this so much. That is my cross to bear, and why I'm finally sort of, I guess, venting all of that into the ether that is the radio waves but it seems that it struck a chord because the podcast is doing well so one of the things that's been really fun is having people on people i don't know very well but also people who i've known for a very long time because that i you know i get your approach i think to to material generally i know where tim is coming at a property from usually i think yeah that's always interesting because my guests always direct who we talk about. I ask each guest, I approach the guests rather than approaching it for the characters, except for we're doing a Hanukkah Magneto episode. Who can I get for that? But otherwise, it really has been about finding a guest and then asking who would you like to talk about that I haven't covered already? I ask for usually five or six names. This one... I I had to... (laughs) (laughs) when you asked you were like okay and to tim's credit tim was like you are completely free to sandbag this immediately yeah 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 but i'm kind of keen to talk about toad what do you think about toad and here's the interesting thing i realized i don't think about the toad i don't think i've ever really had 
a complex thought about Toad, which means that for me, this is going to be a very interesting episode. Because usually I have like some hot takes. And with this guy, I'm just like, well, he's there. He's been there since issue four. Yeah. And uh, he he hops about. He hops. He's, he, he, <laughs> he is. He is the character who hops. He is <laughs> the one who hops. Except unfortunately for him, he kind of has that problem that Warren has. And they've, like Warren, done things to try and fix it. Where... Yeah. His only thing initially was that he hops, but like a lot of characters can hop and do other things. Beast can hop and is a super genius. Like Toad just hops and is otherwise useless. So over the course (laughs) of the books, especially after the movie gave him like other frog themed powers, like the tongue and whatnot, they were like, we got to We got to. It's amazing how long it took for them to give a character named Toad a long tongue. A long tongue. It was a a revelation. It was. was... I believe it was the year 2000, which would be a full 37 years after the character was introduced. Yeah. Yeah. I was very keen to do this podcast. I very appreciated being asked. And when you said think about characters, I ended up thinking about a lot of characters whom I like a lot. I, I thought about Apocalypse. I thought whom whose card I have on my desk right now. I got a little Apocalypse card oh. plus a little Mole Man card right Tim, here. Tim once presented me with a Captain Britain trading card because Tim knows me very well. Oh, yes. <laughs> He was just like, here's a gift, and handed me one of those, like, Fleer Captain Britain cards from the 90s. A good friend of mine um, got me a box of those cards uh, for a birthday once for a dollar. And I, like, held on to them for years. And I just slowly realized it's, like, it's dumb to hold on to these. Everyone has, like, one character they love. And so I just started, like, giving them to people because I knew people would appreciate, Yeah, like, no, it was very one. cute. I was like, ah, Tim. Yeah. And this was long before I started this podcast and became known as the weird... American expert on the 80s run of Captain Britain. So Tim just gets me. Well, so I will say one thing that I love about this podcast is that I feel like you are having the type of conversations about characters that I love to participate in and listen to. And I also think you are capturing your voice and your intellect and your scholarship in a really like special, in the way podcasts are able to do a really special and succinct way. And so when I thought about doing a character like Apocalypse or like I thought about Beak. I thought about like Chamber. And these are all people where I'm like, I kind of want to hear Connor have those conversations with a different person. Like I am. Gotcha. Beak I love. Apocalypse would have been fun just because we were classics students together. Yeah, but I just think I am not as schooled. On his his, uh, publication history. Yeah. And I'm like, I want to hear that conversation with someone who can bring it with Connor in this way that I just don't think I could. And Toad, I felt like I actually think I can bring, (laughs) I think I can like match Connor here. It is I, Tim Platt, the expert on Mortimer Toynbee. I actually, I'm so Toad stupid that I was back reading stuff and I was like, oh, I, I forgot he was British. Yeah, yeah, he is British. Why doesn't Toad ever pop up in Excalibur? The answer is because no one cares about Toad. But you yeah. would think he would have shown up at some point because he's British. Which, like, his name is Mortimer Toynbee. That's pretty British sounding. I just, it had never occurred to me. And you do think that, like, Toad proper, like, original Toad would find his way into Otherworld or something. Find his right, way. Like, that's that's what he makes right. sense, you know? Yeah, like, it's like how he was just with the stranger for, like, a million years, you know? Like, things happen to Toad. I feel like Toad would get on with, like, Mad Jim Jaspers. Like, Toad and the crazy gang. Toad and the, like, it would make sense for Toad to wind up 
in Excalibur stories or Arcade. I mean, because he teams up with Arcade a bunch in mm-hmm. uh, in the seventies. So he's well. Also, he the thing the amazing thing about Toad um, is that <laughs> take it away is that X Men can't get rid of him. Like I, 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 I'm shocked that in so many different adaptations of the X-Men, Toad makes his way through. Somehow, yeah. And I uh, often, to the delight of all, I mean, like, I think <laughs> I think he really works in the movie. I think he kind of, I also think he works in the Evolution show. Although that's a very different character. For sure. But it's like, why would they, <laughs> why bring him in at all? It right, just, it, why? It's crazy it's, to me. It's because he is one of the iconic 60s villains. It's just wild that, you know, you don't see Mastermind get the same kind of play. No. Perhaps because he's so associated with the Dark Phoenix story and they don't want to, you know, but it's weird. You'd think that would make him get even more play because it's such a big story. Or you don't see Unus the Untouchable no. get a ton of stuff. Or the Vanisher or, or the Eric Vanisher, the Red. Or Eric the Red. Even the Blob, Yeah, I would say, gets less play than Toad. And probably because it's harder to adapt the Blob. Well, it's a couple of things. It's like people don't like fat people, right? So like, yeah. I say this as someone who was very fat for many years, just for people who are listening who don't know me. The thing about X-Men Evolution that was weird is there was a very specific fandom that emerged around Toad during that period that was like a slash fandom. Like there were a lot oh, really? of Yeah, there were a lot of girls who were very into Toad. There's like a specific kind of female fan and this is just something I don't understand and I think that it's just something that like my I guess shallow gay brain like cannot fathom. But this very specific type of female fan who gets obsessed with like ugly male characters who are like hmm. misfits. It's this, you notice it. I, I feel like these are the same people who slash Deadpool all the time. Interesting. You know what I, I mean? Yeah. Or like they slash like Junkrat and Roadhog from Overwatch. Like there's a very, it's like this very, I don't know what to, I, how to describe it. Invader Zim slash fan fiction. Like okay, those I mean, people. That I get. You know what I, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I do think there is a, I don't know. Fandoms, I, I am not deep enough into to, to parse out that stuff. That character struck a chord for whatever. You'd see tons of fan art, like him and Nightcrawler hanging out or whatever. And you'd be like, huh. Well, he's low status in a way that I actually think doesn't get a lot of play in superhero comics. Yeah. Which, which is one thing that I respond to and enjoy because I really love that sort of... The, the role he fits is something I've always loved. This sort of low status... Toady, who was just like, yes, sir, or like, yes, master, and or like course, a worm tongue. Like, of course, master. I, f- I just, I told the fact that he's British is truly like a galaxy brain moment for me because I had forgotten this fact entirely. Yeah. But now I can't unhear him as like Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins, like in my head. I mean, that's sort of what they're giving him. That sort of like, oh, well, in the uh, well, it, we, we can talk about this later. I do want to talk about this in the in the Ultimate Universe. Yeah, he is. He's very much of like a oh yeah. Let's go! All right there, Mac and Leo. I think. Yeah, I I just, I I have so thoroughly blocked out the Ultimate Universe in so many ways that, but when when we started doing this, I googled, like, Ultimate Toad. I was like, oh, yeah, he looks like uh, that. It's a very different, it's a different look. What I was trying to get at, I guess, is just, it's interesting to me that Toad in Evolution was sort of seen as, like, 
a potentially ex- like interesting misfit for romantic plots by fans, but you would never see that with the blob. Well, I think low status people yearn. You know, they yeah. yearn and yearning, yeah. there's something romantic about yearning, you know? Um, and I think like... Well, and the, all of those fan treatments of evolution, I feel like are pretty much exactly the plot that Jason Aaron gave Toad in Wolverine and the X-Men with Husk. Yes. Which we'll get to. But... We'll get to. my. Before we get to it, I'll say that like, I'm glad he had like a plot line because I'm interested in the, I'm interested in the Toad. And I also think that compl- that plot line was sort of messy, but also pointed to something that I find very X-Men, which is this sort of idea of like, as like a young little boy who like loved Nightcrawler particularly, that sort of attitude of like, ah, go, you'll never like me. I know what I'm like. I'm a monster. Right. Wait, you actually love me? You know, like that sort of, yeah, that sort of energy for me is very X-Men. Oh, it is, for like, sure. I'm a, fr- I'm, a, I'm a freak. No one could love me. The funniest thing about Nightcrawler, of course, is that he finds a woman who doesn't care, and he's overjoyed, and they fall totally in love, and then it turns out she doesn't care because she's his sister. Yeah, it's completely <laughs> nuts. It's completely nuts. I, I know you, you... I wish that was not a part of his, like, love life. And, like, I think it's cool. I think if, like, that part of his life was given more stories, I'd be more into it. But as it is now, I'm just sort of, like... I don't know what it does for anyone to have him in that space, especially if he's a Catholic priest. You well, know? he's not anymore, though. He hasn't been a priest in a while. What I like is I was rereading, actually, recently, for reasons, the Nightcrawler <laughs> miniseries from 2004 by Roberto Aguirre Sacasa. It's the one where he and Night Nurse have all these adventures, Christine Palmer, okay. and like he goes back to the circus and finds out what happened to his brother Stefan and that he was possessed and like yada yada yada. Anyway, there's really funny stuff with him and Amanda in that because she pops up a couple times throughout the miniseries and he's just always like like at one point he's trying to introduce her to Christine and he's like, Do I call her my ex girlfriend? Do I call her my sister? What do I do here? And it's just a but like it 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 really faces it head on in a way that I found very funny. At one point she's like, so your sister Amanda and Chris like yeah let's not talk about it yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just I don't know I love I love Amanda and I love that relationship but it's one of the weirdest things in the X-Men it's just one of those Chris what do you Mr. Claremont I don't understand why you would do this but it's fun it's just fun to me I like weird shit like that I was just saying to someone it's similar to how like I've recently warmed up to the character of Pixie mostly because the idea that she's mastermind's daughter with a fairy is extremely funny to me yeah I, I see that. Like, that character was boring to me until she got a really stupid X-Men family plot. And then, like, once you bring in a really stupid background plot that's very X-Men and funny. Or it's like Zaladane. I mean, I just went on to my whole Zaladane tangent <laughs> last week. <laughs> I'm now measuring character appearances in Zaladanes. A Zaladane is 12 appearances. So Toad has appeared approximately 15 and a half Zaladanes. Yeah, he doesn't deserve that. He yeah, I'm like, that's way, that. like, that's way too many Zaladans for Toad, in my <laughs> humble opinion. So your story, Tim, before we get mm. into Toad, you've kind of been teasing at the edges of it now, but what's your history with the X-Men? How did you get into it? How did you first get into these characters? What's your origin story, as it were? Sure. So when I was a kid, there was a lot of... um 
we had a lot of old comic strip books in my house, like Bloom County and Doonesbury. And so I was really into those like old strips. And then there was also like a Fantastic Four original, like eight issues or something like that. These like first like Like a Marvel Masterworks or something. It was like my dad's old thing from college. Oh, okay. And I really got into those. I was really into the thing. I was really, and obviously X-Men was, was a cartoon. The the video game was around. That's uh, the, the arcade game, as you brought up yeah. before, was like a, so I was aware of them as a Gateway property. drug for so many of us who are now in our 30s, I think, was that video game. Yes. Like, and especially the Nightcrawler in that. Um, and then I also had this book right here. I brought it with me. This is like. The Origins of Marvel Comics by Stan Lee. Which I've is read like, that. Yeah, I remember that. It's um, a really great like primer on all these other properties except the X-Men. So right. I feel like I was a very much like I wanted this thing and had access to sort of, sort of older Marvel, but not the X-Men itself until I just started like getting those early Chris Claremont Uncanny, those big books. Yeah. And I started reading those and like really loving them. Well, that's the thing about Stan is like Stan doesn't have a lot to say about the X-Men because Stan wrote them for like 14 issues and then was done. Yeah. And also everything that we associate with the X-Men, the minority stuff, most of the characters all comes after he was long off that book. It's the giant size cast that Ween and Cockrum created and then Chris Claremont reestablishing what everything meant so it makes sense i remember in that book that book specifically being disappointed that stanley didn't have more to say about the x-men but oh yeah well of course he does now that i know more about how these characters were written and how the book evolved as a kid i was just like what about the x-men that's all i care about you know yeah so and i and i think that really that was something i like ate up sort of privately but didn't have much to share it with and then and then somehow I got into somehow I became aware of New X Men and Grant Morrison. Maybe it was the movie, um, but like something somehow that presented itself to me, and I was like, "This, this is amazing." So I got read all of those. We are so lucky that that was coming out when we were in high school. Yes, and that was like the window of me looking at old X Factor stuff. Like onslaught was things I was like digging into. Old Age of Apocalypse was stuff I was digging into. Sort of as like single issues or what was ever for sale and weird weird old bookstores that like it was the x-factor specifically with forge mystique yeah the howard mackie x-factor that's the one i read consistently also this is very similar to my like my dad obviously he had this huge collection but in terms of the stuff i was reading myself it was really whatever was coming out in trade so like i remember because trades were kind of new at that time and i remember that in 2000 so we were 12 the Inferno trade came out. And so that's why it's like one of these stories, like I cannot escape Madeline Pryor and Ileana Rasputina, no matter what I do. Like they are just, they just live rent-free in my brain because I read Inferno when I was 12, which is a fucked up age to read Inferno at. Yeah. My dad, when he saw that I had bought it, was like, your mother let you buy that? Because he had, of course, read it in 89 when it was coming out when we were one. I actually recently discovered that I was born the month that Maddie and the X-Men died in Dallas in Fall of the Mutants, which feels very, that feels very... That's a gift to you. Yeah, that's for me. That's That's, the world giving you a gift. That's for me. That's a gift. You know, I read that Chris Chris, Chris Claremont stuff kind of, I never got to Inferno. Like, I don't remember... Well, it's sort of the the climax of his run, like, because he's there for a long, I mean, he's there for 16 years, and that's... 
the only real story arcs after that that are big, the event arcs, are like Extinction Agenda. And... Which I did read. I read that because I had a separate collection. I had like a collection of the... Because um... again, the events would come out in trade. This is something I think people don't necessarily yeah. get now is like you couldn't get like an omnibus, really. You could get a trade of the mutant massacre. And so when you're reading these as a kid, if and I would fill in with my dad's old issues and stuff, but I had to figure it out because you would get like from the ashes mutant massacre fall of the mutants inferno extinction agenda those are the trades so like figure out what happens in between these events it, yeah and that, that's that was a part of this that was a part of the x-men process too being a sort of like okay so i have i've read extinction agenda i've read fall of new mutants where is this other stuff who is eric the red why is he in right, all like, who these the early fuck Christ- is this guy right yeah <laughs> Unfortunately, that's never answered, although maybe yeah. it will be now. Did you see this blew my fucking mind? They just put out the preview pages for X-Men Legends 1, Fabian Nicieza's. No, they I have not seen this. X-Men Legends is this new book where they're having legendary X-Men writers come back to do brief, like, two-issue arcs set in the time when they were writing the book. Cool. So the first two issues is an arc that Fabian Nicieza is doing about Adam X, the Extreme who, by the way, has three more appearances than Zaladane, which I think is not fair. Cool. Two of them are very recent, so that's, <laughs> you know, whatever. It's, someone needs to bring her back. It's been a long time. Point is, Adam X was, of course, supposed to be the third Summer's brother back in the 90s, mm, but great. it was all messed up by things that have happened since. So they're letting Fabian Nicieza go back and do that, and in the preview pages, it's like, here are Cyclops and Havoc fighting Eric the Red. And I was like, holy shit, are we finally going to find out what this guy's deal is? Because it's been 40 years of not knowing what this guy's deal is. You know, it's one thing I really liked about the Ed Piscore X-Men project, because as someone who was reading all that stuff at that time and not having a Wikipedia or not having sort of omnibuses, but having like weird Marvel imprints of like, here's the history of these characters you meet once. It was nice to see a story that also felt like a Wikipedia page and being like, all right, this all makes sense. You can like download this information. Yeah, Tim's talking about X-Men Grand Design by Ed Piskor, which I think is interesting. I, I've heard the criticism that it reads a bit like a book report, which I think is somewhat which is, true. Yeah, th- and that's sort of where I'm responding to. Is that I, I kind of like that because so much of my early X-Men experience was like reading these pieces and then having to go to like Barnes & Noble and going to like a complete guide of the yeah. Marvel characters and being like, okay, who is this character? What is the stranger's deal? Okay. As a way of introducing people, I do think grand design is much more effective than, for example, the Ultimate Universe, which was a similar concept, right? It was like, let's make it all simple. You don't need to know the continuity. But it very quickly veered off into its own very confusing continuity. And then it was more confusing because you had two separate confusing continuities. Whereas grand design, it goes through the whole history. It makes some changes. It does. I, of course, I'm just going to have to note this it it conflates the characters of Lee Forrester and Madeline Pryor yeah which is an interesting choice that i understand doing they're cyclops's two post gene love interests yeah. but as a maddie head i'm a little bit like that's not a story that maddie's in that's not how that works however it's very maddie sympathetic so there's a great two there's a great two panel moment where scott is like are you Jean? Are are you Jean Grey? And she and you really see her like slap him in the That's face. That's in the original comic, though. She punches him right in the jaw. 
Oh, really? I have yep. to look at that panel again. Yeah, he references a lot of like original. Yeah, panels no, and stuff. that's in that's in the original from the Ashes storyline. He finally breaks down and he's like, "I have to ask, like, are you Jean Grey?" And she stares at him for a moment and then like right hook punches him right across the face. Like he goes flying and then she runs away because she's fucking upset. And then he opens the door. It's actually a, a pretty famous cliffhanger page he opens the door to try and go after her and dark phoenix knocks him on his ass hell yeah and it says to be concluded it's the second to last issue of that storyline and of course the dark phoenix of it all is mastermind fucking with him but the punching him across the face part happens it to be that's a very key madeline Pryor moment because gene would not have done that yeah gene would have been pissed and reacted in a different way but Madeline gets physical. I think that the physicality of Madeline, because she didn't have powers. Okay, we're going into moments with Maddie now, and we haven't even gotten to the toad yet, okay. so I have to stop myself. So you were getting into the trades and whatnot, and Morrison was coming out when we yes. were teenagers, which was amazing. And then Ultimate was too. And Ultimate yeah, yeah. was, that was where I was like, okay, I can start from the beginning. So I got right. into the Ultimates for a while until... Exactly what you said. It slow, it like pretty quickly became its own complicated inter-narrative with these different other ultimate storylines that all like I think most of the ultimates have like two great trades and yeah. then suddenly become and then chaos. it just gets bizarre. I, I think that the one that really holds up is Ultimate Spider-Man, yes. which is why they've now brought that character to the main universe because they were like, we're junking this entire universe, but we want to keep this one kid. Yes, but Toad. And the reason Toad came up to me when talking about this is because every time I see Toad, I'm like, I like this. I like him. I like watching him do this. I like him as this weird Magneto lackey that's very like, hey, master. Yeah, I, I mean, love you that always shit. liked Igor's. Love Igor's. Yeah, yeah. And you like, in my experience of you, you also, you like characters that are kind of gross or off-putting. Yeah, yeah. In the same way that I love, like, a bad bitch with huge hair. It's like we all have our archetypal character. If I were to look at a cast of characters, like, which one of these characters would Tim Platt have thoughts on? It would be, like, the weird goblin-y one. Like, Nightcrawler being your favorite X-Man makes perfect sense because he's the heroic version of that. Give me a salacious crumb in Star Wars. Yeah, you love Wars. a salacious crumb Give me a fucking, uh, uh, what's his name? Is it Worm Tongue in Lord of the Rings. Like, give me these nasty freaks. Or the character that you play in your podcast. I yeah. Mean, he, he draws on elements of that archetype. For sure. It's part of it is that when I look at these universes and I think of, like, how, who, I mean, whenever I played pretend as a kid, it was less like, let's play with the toys. It's like, I am going to be somebody else. How can I, like become whatever fucking character I want to be. And when I looked at like the X-Men or like any plot line, even today, I'm just like the heroes, the villains are all too big. I feel like there's something nasty. A, a nasty character always pulls me towards them, especially because of the way you can play with a nasty character, even small moves become big, you know, like, so with Toad in the ultimate universe, they suddenly make him this character who was like, not really a lackey, kind of tough and cool. More of a Guy Ritchie crime movie villain, almost. Like a thug from a British crime movie. And a legitimate friend to Cyclops. Like, in the Ultimates universe... Yeah, I forgot about that plot. He and Cyclops, like, have phone calls all the time, catching up about bullshit the X-Men are doing. Well, because Cyclops goes to the Brotherhood for a minute. Yeah, but he stays in touch with Toad, and they talk about Lord of the Rings on the phone. And I remember that being a moment of being like, 
yeah, like there, the idea of Toad and Cyclops being friends is something that sort of made that character suddenly so much more exciting and interesting to me. And then also how he is in Morrison's run, where he's like, he's still a lackey, he's still supporting Magdiel's insane cause. But the way he's pre- presented there is a little more like, I think at one point he says, I'm doing what, I, I'm doing what I've always done, Magneto. I'm just telling you the truth. You know, which is not how he's been Which the whole is completely time. untrue, but right? But that framing of it is exciting. My favorite moment in Planet X with him is when he is the one who wonders, was Magneto more powerful dead than alive? Yeah. What, were we better off with Magneto as a symbol, as a dead man that we can put on a t-shirt than we are with actual Magneto, who clearly is not playing with a full deck anymore? Yes. He's the character who gives voice to Morrison's question about Magneto, which I think is very interesting. Yeah. Because that is the central question of Magneto in the whole new X-Men run. And Morrison is on the side of the actual Magneto sucks. You guys just like the idea of Magneto, which I don't agree with, but it's an interesting take. It relies to me too heavily on the 60s Magneto, which I think needs to be sort of disregarded because Claremont just made him a new character. And this is why I just had a whole argument with someone again about Quentin Quire. Yes. I just have trouble with that with him. And I understand that the character Morrison created, much like the 60s Magneto, is not the character anybody's writing now. Yeah. But for me, I think it's because... Quentin Quire, as written in Morrison, is so real. He is a right-wing provocateur, straight white kid who's like a fucking asshole. He predicted all of those Reddit trolls, all Mm -hmm. of those Twitter neo-Nazis. Like, that is that kid. So to have that character become this heroic character is, to me, more difficult to square than it is for me to embrace like Magneto or Emma or Mr. Sinister even like being a character who's allowed to evolve because those characters are so much larger than life that I'm like sure whereas Riot and Xavier's I'm just like this is like a real person who hurts people like this is something that really happens all the time you know I think I I generally agree with you what I will say about that is first I think Riot and Xavier's is maybe like maybe my favorite one of the best X-Men stories of all time ever and I also, one thing I really loved about that period was that I always think X-Men works best when it's at a school. And I think that the when things go into space, I tend to, with the, with exception for those a lot of those great Claremont storylines, I'm always a little hesitant to X-Men in space because it doesn't seem the story that I connect to. And I do like the idea... It turns into Star Wars pretty fast. Yes. And I do like the idea of, of the X-Men being a space of like, we there are us as students and then us as not students anymore and there being a growth or change there is something i appreciate and i think often in x-men stories the jump between student and real quote-unquote x-men is like messy or unclear or they just wipe stuff aside the problem there is that the characters aren't really allowed to age and so you end up in a situation where Mirage and Karma and Cannonball should have been full X-Men, period, by like 1992. Yeah. It doesn't really work that they're still the New Mutants and that they're still wearing the school uniforms and stuff like that. Yeah. I actually think that Vita Ayala is taking that book in a very smart direction by making New Mutants a book that's about all 500 students that we now have had introduced and establishing 
okay, Danny and Sean and Warpath and all of these people are going to be teaching. They're taking the school responsibility onto themselves because in that first issue of Vita's new run, actually, they write a letter to the Quiet Council that kind of is arguing the X-Men needs to be a book about a school. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I love the Krakoa era, but I do think one thing we have lost is the school aspect. And so I'm interested to see how it can only be a good thing for these students to have someone besides Charles or Emma setting the curriculum. Because we all know I ride or die for Emma Grace Frost. However... Track record of a lot of dead students. She just does. We just have to embrace the fact that sometimes her educational methods yeah. are not and ideal. I, like, I, I feel like with Gen X, which I also enjoyed, um, I also feel like, I forget, did she lose people in Gen X? Sink, Sink. right? Her, Sink sister, her sister killed Sink, and then she shot her sister in the face, which uh, was great. Fantastic. That's the end of Gen X, essentially. Because then all of the kids figure out that she murdered Adrian, and they're like, we're out. And I'm like, Adrian needed to die, though, kids. Yeah. So I also want to say about Toad, because I think Gen X makes me think of Chamber, who is another X-Men I like a lot, specifically for this same sort of, like, I'm disgusting, no one would like me type thing. Right. Which one thing I think Toad fits into, which is something I want to talk about with Beak, but didn't feel like I was the right person to have that conversation, is that, like, I like it when the mutants have these very physical mutations. When they're ugly, when they're hideous to look upon, when human society doesn't want to have them around. Yeah. It creates a different... I mean, it's the Morlocks, right? Yeah, love the Morlocks. The thing about the Morlocks is, if you go back to the classic stories where they're introduced in the Claremont run, like, even the Morlocks, where the point is, these are the mutants who aren't pretty like the X-Men, who can't pass... Their leader still has to be Callisto, who Callisto in those stories in the 80s is definitely drawn homelier than Storm or Candy Southern is in that story or Kitty even, who's supposed to be a girl next door, but is definitely a cute girl next door. Kitty has all this angst about not being as gorgeous and stacked as Storm or Rogue or Dazzler or whoever. But Callisto is like, a little bit homely in the face and has some facial scarring and an eye patch. That's it. Like she's not like Caliban is a creepy chalk white monster. Like leech looks like a frog. Like they're not, you know, but you still to get readers on the hook, Callisto has to be a recognizably comic booky character. That's not, that yeah like when mask leads the morlocks the morlocks are not around because mask creeps readers out well mask is creepy mask is creepy for a million reasons yeah but and i do think toad helps when i like toad also taps into that version mutation for me like beak where it's like this guy really shouldn't be in a superhero book, right? Like, Right, because this isn't what, what people usually want out of their superhero comics. They want idealized power fantasy men and idealized sexual fantasy women most yeah. of the time. Yeah. That's, what the, that's the conventional wisdom on like what a superhero book character looks like. And I think that's why Toad is not the character who gets to have a redemption arc. It's Wanda and Pietro who are the two hot people in the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Yeah. Mastermind is a creepy old lech. The blob is fat. Toad is Toad. Those characters don't get 
because their exterior is not appealing in that way to the readership, their interior doesn't get the opportunity to grow, even though Toad has a much more sympathetic arc than Quicksilver ever does, particularly. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's because, I think it, for me, it always comes down to status. It's because you put Toad into, and, and why I think he's so well adapted, because you need to have someone who is okay being, listening to Magneto. You need to have yeah. someone who is okay being a, a less powerful villain. Because you want to have some of the villains that heroes can beat up easily yeah. every single time. And you want that character to work. You need a henchman. No you need a henchman. And I think the way he works as a henchman is really, I just think it's fun. I think it's cool. Like, I rarely see a use of him where I'm not like, oh, I'm cool. That was a good use. I often see, uh, what I mean to say is, I'm never disappointed when Toad's put in the story. Like, he's in 1602 for some reason. I was like, <laughs> and he works. He really <laughs> no, works. He does. He's like he a spy true. for the he's papacy or something. everywhere. It's like, he's in that. He's in, um... Oh geez, he's in the he's in, he's in like the some of the video games. I feel yeah. like I should try to write write some other. He's ones in that in. fighting game, Mutant Academy, or next Dimension, one of them. The like in that yeah. series, and I remember him being this very OP character, which if you're not a video games person, means like overpowered, like too powerful for the game. And it was funny because it's Toad, and he's like wrecking Storm or whatever. Who and you're just sort of like Toad should not be this good in this game. Yeah, he's and the I one who hops. He's not. I also you know. think there's an interesting thing with Toad where, like, uh, one thing I will say is that it seems like Claremont didn't want to use him, you know? Right. He's one of the 60s characters that Claremont clearly did not have interest in. Like, he's not in Mystique's Brotherhood, notably. Yeah. And I think that's great. I think I love Mystique's Brotherhood. I love Freedom Force. And I'm he would not work in that space because I do think he is tied to the, the way he – so I reread some of those older 60s uh, appearances of him and like the Magneto in those is so funny. He's a fu he's ridiculous. He like has yeah. I mean he's a cartoon character. Yeah, it, he's not he's not the Magneto we know. It's it's like he's a very he is like all of the like the MF Doom recordings of Doctor Doom like cartoon stuff. Yeah, you know what I mean it's like all that's all very Magneto. Well, he is just Doctor he is just Doctor Doom. I mean that's, that's true. what is. The weakest thing about the 60s X-Men, frankly, is that the villains are not compelling outside of the arc with the Juggernaut. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's a great story. And the concept of the Sentinels. Yes. Those are really the only 60s. And Sauron's funny. But, like, Sauron is not a character. Like, Sauron is a fun character. But you, the problem that the X-Men have in the 60s is that the villains suck. Yeah. And part of that is that Magneto is just a copy of Doctor Doom who's not as much fun. Yeah. And, and the fact that Toad is there with him, and that 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 type of Toad that's sort of like that. Yes, Master, you're the best. I love you. I love working. <laughs> Magneto, for this, I love you. Uh, I know you'll take care of it. This fascist who abuses me constantly. I love it. Which is why it's fun later in the '60s when Toad gets fed up and tries to kill Magneto, which yeah. is great because it's like he finally is like, you know what? Actually. It's like Toad leans in. Like, Toad realizes, like, I don't deserve this hostile work environment. Which is why I do think now the most exciting thing for Toad to be, in my opinion, is someone who does agree with Magneto. And not level. Magneto will never see him as a level person. But for him to sort of come back around, he, he doesn't really work on his own. You know, like, he doesn't really work as a, no. leader, uh, as a leader of the Brotherhood. No, he was a leader of the Brotherhood in the Liefeld X-Force very briefly when it was, like, him and Blob and Pirate Avalanche and Fantasia, who they should yeah. bring back because she was fun. But 
it didn't it didn't work. That's a very short lived iteration because he's not a leader. Yeah, I do think he works as a janitor. And I think like that version <laughs> of him is fun. Yeah, I think it was I think it made sense for sure. But I feel like what was most what would be most fun for him right now is to be like, how does this type of person work with someone like Magneto? I feel like that relationship was foundational, abandoned for all the fair reasons. Now we just have sort of have we then we see it adapted for all these different reasons because if you have a Magneto, a Toad is easily placed somewhere right. in these ad- adaptations. Yeah, I think Claremont did away with Toad in part because Claremont was rewriting Magneto into yes. a different character. And the Magneto that Claremont establishes, who is this well-intentioned bad guy who has this tragic backstory, all of the Holocaust stuff, it doesn't quite work to have this literal toady who he abuses like both emotionally and physically all the time it just is a different dynamic that he doesn't fit into yeah that's why he really disappears for the entire claremont period which is why in the morrison where that relationship and it, it this is definitely a twist on it's not i'm i always tell you the truth is not what that toad is but no the version of like that magneto says awful shit to Toad, and Toad is just like... Well, because again, Morrison's drawing on those 60s stories, yeah. I hear you, sir, but like, stuff is happening, I'm telling you what's happening right there, it might be a good idea to do this, and he's like, you're an idiot, and he's like, okay, you know, like, right. that, that sort of, I feel like that that type of character fits into an awful lot of stories. Yeah, well, what's, what's interesting about Planet X is the brotherhood that Morrison assembles for Magneto is clearly based on the 60s brotherhood to some extent. So it's like Toad is there. Yeah. Esme of the Cuckoos is serving the mastermind role of yeah. like, this is a bad person who yeah. has sort of a psychic ability. And then Beak and Angel are Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch. Yeah. These are the characters who don't really morally want to be here and they realize that they're in over their head very quickly. It's in part because Morrison's whole premise in Planet X is Morrison doesn't buy Claremont's rewrite of the character Mm -hmm. because Morrison is invested in the 60s stories and it's like, that's not Magneto to me. In the Magneto episode with Spencer Ackerman, we kind of went deep on that. I like Planet X a lot. I also understand completely why Marvel felt the need to retcon it immediately so that it wasn't really Magneto because for much more of Magneto's publication history, Magneto has been the Claremont Magneto. And to a lot of people, that character is important. And so it made sense to do away with it. But I do think that it is a very deliberate callback by Morrison to the 60s stories and that flipping Toad that way is very intentional because it's almost saying this kind of villain isn't someone we can accept in a serious story anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And these, if these stories are going to be at all something we can take seriously, we need to be able to look a crazy cartoon fascist like that in the face and be like, mm, like even Toad isn't buying it anymore. Yeah, which I think is cool. And also as like a person who likes to act and pretend to, and to be different characters i like that you can just dial toad just that amount in one direction and it feels like now th- and it feels like this is a take on toad you know this like, is an arc right yeah which <laughs> i think is cool I, I think you give him like the smallest thing and suddenly you're like hey th- they just do a toad story like, like hell yeah right secretly in the background of this other story that was happening we just had a toad tale yeah i appreciate you caring like because my thing is i am i mean famously as you pointed out this podcast devolves 
into a Madeline Pryor podcast. Madeline Pryor is a minor character in the history of the <laughs> X-Men. Yeah. She is a character who I cannot stop thinking about. And so I find ways to be like, this is secretly a Madeline Pryor story, even when she's like dead and not even in the story. But like if yeah. anything Cyclops does or anything Jean does, I think like, well, this is an interesting commentary on Madeline Pryor, which is insane. But I've always felt drawn to those characters the characters who are in the background to me it's usually women i perceive as being underused or as not being allowed to meet their potential or as being dismissed by the narrative and this is a character who's dismissed by the narrative in a different way yes they're low status because they're women in a sexist genre he's low status because he is the embodiment of low status he's not yeah. beautiful he's not intelligent particularly he's not a character who has much to offer. He's not powerful. No. <laughs> which in a power fantasy like the X-Men is enormously important. If you're going to be a character who is low status in other ways, you need to be able to compensate for it by at least being able to kick a lot of ass, which he can't even do. Or have a flaming tongue. I think that also I think it also helps to have a flaming tongue. <laughs> what are your thoughts I, on the flaming tongue? I think it's stupid. I think it's stupid. It's very I think, stupid. I'm I glad like, that it, they're just not. I, I think we've just not acknowledged it in a while. Yeah, like it. It, lo it looks cool. If you the, don't know what John, we're talking about, don't worry about it. We'll get to it in the character file. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's it looks cool. I mean, I still, I am actually down for how he is given a tongue. I am down for how he is giving like spit. You know, and the yeah, and the slime. stuff from the movies was smart to add to the actual character in the comics because the movie version of the character was more legit than the comic character had ever been in terms of like a villain you could be nervous about. Yes. Well, for those of you who are not that versed in this character, which is most people, here's a fun fact. Toad is the first character I have done on this podcast who does not have an in-depth profile on UncannyXMen.net, which is shocking to me because most characters do. I like to look at those after I write my character file to make sure that I didn't miss any like important storylines. So I went to look at Toad's and it does not exist. Great. <laughs> so if I forgot the important Toad storylines in this, blame uncannyxmen.net. They fell down on the job. I'm just kidding. It's an incredible website. It's been an incredible website for 21 years. However, someone over there should write a spotlight on toad because i wasn't able to cross-reference which was stressful for me as someone who likes to cover all my bases so let's segue into my attempt at a cerebro character file on toad this character has a pretty linear history it's just weird so we'll jump into that and then we will come right back to talk with tim about his favorite toad storylines x-men x-men Mortimer Toynbee, best known as the Toad, is one of the longest-running foes of the X-Men. Introduced as a founding member of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants in March 1964's X-Men 4 by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, he's notable primarily as the servile, sycophantic henchman of Magneto, an ugly little man with the power to jump higher and further than a normal human. In the decades since, he has mostly continued to be an ugly little man with the power to jump higher and further than a normal human. But he was significantly revamped with new powers after the Fox X-Men film franchise introduced a popular reimagining of the character. In his early appearances, Toad is, well, a toady. He relentlessly tattles on his teammates to Magneto, hoping to get rid of them and be Magneto's only true servant. 
He spends all his time fawning over Magneto's genius or fleeing in terror and begging Magneto for help. He has a merry sense of humor, but is terrified of Magneto's disapproval, which is nearly constant. In X-Men 11, he's captured alongside Magneto by the cosmic being called the Stranger, who abducts the two mutants for scientific study. When Magneto briefly escapes some issues later, he leaves Toad behind before being recaptured. Eventually, they break free again together, and Toad continues to serve Magneto. But he resents the earlier betrayal and begins to chafe at Magneto's abuse as they battle the X-Men as well as the Avengers, a team that now includes former Brotherhood members, Quicksilver, and the Scarlet Witch. By 1968's Avengers 53, Toad intentionally abandons Magneto to die in an explosion and then blocks the way when Magneto attempts to escape. Magneto is believed dead for some time after this, and Toad becomes reclusive. Toward the end of the original X-Men run, he's captured by mutant-hunting sentinel robots alongside Quicksilver, the Scarlet Witch, and others, but is rescued by the X-Men. After an adventure with Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch in the pages of Avengers, Toad ends up in outer space again, don't worry about it, and manages to construct a ship to take him back to the Stranger's world. He masters the Stranger's alien technology in an effort to become a powerful man in his own right, and win the affections of the Scarlet Witch. By the time he gets back to Earth, though, she's married the Vision, which infuriates him. Posing as the Stranger, he attacks the Avengers in an effort to find her, using his new technology, but he's defeated and sent to prison. In a 1980 Marvel 2-in-1 story, Toad commissions the supervillain Arcade to help him turn an abandoned castle in upstate New York, which, sure, into a death trap. Calling himself the Terrible Toad King, he decides to seek revenge on all who've ever humiliated him, and begins with the former X-Man Angel. Toad panics when Arcade demands payment it turns out he can't afford, and Angel takes pity on him, paying to convert the castle into a Toad-themed amusement park, and allowing Toad to work off his debts. Toad returns in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man in 1985, where, uh, he decides to kill himself. Spider-Man manages to talk him off the ledge, and Toad becomes obsessed with becoming Spider-Man's new partner, which Spider-Man is just not into conceptually. Toad hires some criminals to attack Spider-Man in an effort to create a situation Toad can rescue Spider-Man from, but it doesn't quite work out that way. He ends up forming a short-lived superhero group called the Misfits with two other weirdos, Frogman and Spider-Kid. In this story, we learn that Toad was an abandoned child already displaying his mutation from infancy and was tormented by the other children at the orphanage. While Toad plays the hero game for a little while, his obsession with the Scarlet Witch deepens. In the 1986 Vision in the Scarlet Witch miniseries by Steve Englehart, Toad uses the stranger's stolen technology several times to try to kill the Vision, kidnap the Scarlet Witch, and force her to become his bride. In the 11th issue, after battling Spider-Man and the Vision, Toad forces his way into the Scarlet Witch's home, only to discover she is eight months pregnant. He's disgusted by her appearance, and she defeats him easily despite her advanced pregnancy. Repulsed and no longer carrying a torch for his longtime crush, the Toad escapes. In the 90s, Toad appears in a few stories as the leader of a new brotherhood, recruiting classic X-Men villains Sauron, Pyro, and the Blob, and new villainess Fantasia. After several failed missions, this team disbands, and Toad's next major storyline is in 1996's Generation X-19, where it's revealed that Emma Frost took pity on him after his bid to join the Hellfire Club got him laughed out of the room. He's since been living in a mansion she owns in Ontario, where another mutant called the Surgeon has helped him create an army of sentient frogs and toads. He has an evil scheme, naturally, but when Emma shames him, he relents, and the frog army abandons him. In the 2001 miniseries X-Men Forever by Fabian Nicieza, Toad travels in time and ends up transformed into a new design that's more like the more popular version of Toad from the Fox X-Men movie. He gets a prehensile tongue and other new powers and becomes much more conventionally attractive. 
We learned that his previous deformities were due to experimentation on him as a baby by the scientists at the mysterious Black Womb Project, don't worry about it right now, which made his mutation unstable. The series ends in a big confrontation with the stranger, who's been subtly manipulating mutant evolution from afar for years. It's a nice bit of story wrap-up for Toad. He later turns up on Genosha after its destruction, paying respects to Magneto, who's believed dead at that time. In the penultimate arc of Grant Morrison's new X-Men, Planet X, Toad returns to Magneto's side as the second-in-command of his new brotherhood of evil mutants. This brotherhood conquers Manhattan, but Toad is a much more confident person now, and Magneto is behaving psychopathically. Toad questions orders, and wonders if perhaps Magneto was more useful dead as a symbol than alive as an old man who's apparently lost his mind. When Magneto is killed by Wolverine, Toad flees. Shortly after this arc, a retcon establishes the Magneto of Planet X to be an imposter. The 2005 company-wide event House of M precipitates the decimation, in which the Scarlet Witch, driven to madness, depowers all but about 200 mutants in an effort to eradicate mutant kind. Toad is one of the 198 known mutants to retain his powers, and moves to the refugee camp established at the Xavier Mansion. He becomes a background character for the Utopia era of the X-Men, occasionally causing trouble for Cyclops and demanding better leadership. After the 2011 event Schism divides the remaining mutants, Toad joins Wolverine's faction in departing Utopia. He becomes the janitor at the new Jean Grey School for Higher Learning. Toad has further mutated at this point into an uglier appearance, green-skinned but otherwise more like his original look. He develops an obsession with the X-Man Paige Guthrie, codenamed Husk. Husk has the power to shed her skin and adopt new forms, and Toad begins secretly stealing her shed skins and keeping them, holding little tea parties with them. Over time, Husk's mental state deteriorates, and during the 2012 event Avengers vs. X-Men, she begins reciprocating Toad's feelings after he heroically saves one of the students, Quentin Choir. As Husk grows crazier and crazier, a side effect of a secondary mutation, Headmistress Kitty Pride decides to remove her from the teaching staff. Choosing to resign instead of be fired, Husk quits in a fit of rage and becomes a teacher at the rival Hellfire Academy, which, don't worry about it. Toad and Quentin Quire follow Husk to the evil school, but Toad is deeply unhappy there, and eventually helps Quentin escape because he's being tortured. Husk, now fully insane, attempts to kill Toad. He rips off layer after layer after layer of her disfigured flesh, eventually revealing a normal-looking version of her with her sanity restored. He quickly discovers, however, that this restored page has no memory of their relationship. While Husk is welcomed back at the Jean Grey school, Wolverine fires Toad from his janitorial job due to his earlier betrayal. Husk asks Toad to meet her for coffee so she can remember what she loved about him. But he doesn't show up, leaving her devastated. Instead, he begins working for one of the evil children who ran the Hellfire Academy. Again, don't worry about it. Honestly, the resolution here was kind of confusing. He's back with the X-Men somehow by the time of Inhumans vs. X-Men, but who cares? In a 2016 story by Dennis Hallam during the all-new X-Men era, Toad has fallen into deep depression and alcoholism, and decides to kill the time-traveling teen Cyclops in an attempt to rewrite the timeline. His plan, obviously, does not succeed. During the Secret Empire storyline in 2017, he develops a secondary mutation that allows him to set his prehensile tongue on fire. Which, uh, okay. Why not? In the 2019 reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by Jonathan Hickman, Toad teams up with Mystique and Sabretooth to steal information about the Super Sentinel Nimrod on behalf of Charles Xavier and Magneto. The team is successful, and Toad becomes a citizen of the new sovereign mutant nation on the living island Krakoa. He's been mostly keeping to himself since then, enjoying paradise in the background, but there's no doubt we haven't seen the last of this classic X-Men character. X-Men, X-Men! Well, there you have it, the most comprehensive 
accounting of Toad's publication history that perhaps exists anywhere because UncannyXMen.net does not have one. The problem with the Wikipedia and Marvel Wiki ones is that I find them... For nerd stuff, I think Wikipedia and wikis generally are just pretty unreliable, which is unfortunate. The citations are just not going to be as robust. UncannyXMen.net, if you aren't familiar with it, is a good website to look at for character histories. What they do, though, is very different from what I do in the sense that they present the history as the canon has it now. Right. So things are out of publication sequence because it's chronological. Right, right, right. Which means that if there are retcons, they're just incorporated into the character profile as though they were always there. So that's why I use them as a cross-reference rather than a, a jumping off point because it's just a different type of project. But if you have enjoyed the Cerebro character file on any character and you'd like to go read a pretty comprehensive accounting that incorporates all the retcons, that's a good resource. In any case, Mr. Toad has had a bit of a wild ride, one might say. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, if you look at that compre- his comprehensive storyline, it's kind of insane and actually, like, creates a more interesting character than Toad ever is, if we took that all seriously. Yeah, often, often that's true. There was an incredible article by Claire Napier on women writing about comics recently about Crystal from the Inhumans. Oh, And how... Yeah. She's an absolutely terrible person. And it made me actually enjoy Crystal in a way I never have cared about her before. Because if you embrace that Crystal did all of these things and existed in all of these stories where she's truly a horrendous malignant narcissist, she becomes a very funny character. Yeah. In a way where I would actually enjoy now seeing her pop up more. Whereas previously I was just like, oh, the Inhumans again. You know, but if if they would lean into her being this dreadful celebutant of the Inhumans, that would be very funny. And Toad is a similar character where if you take all of these stories seriously as things that happen to this person, he becomes surprisingly captivating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like him being taken by the stranger, him being left by Magneto on that planet, him being like mastering alien technology... That's pretty cool, <laughs> you know. Um, him being a sort of believer in the idea of a brotherhood for some reason, and keeping that going in different times. Like, I think when I think of Toad storylines, I think of the Morrison. I think of original Magneto stuff and how he fits and how fun those like <laughs> this dude screaming "Yes, Master!" is. I think of also how well he does an adaptation. And so I don't want to go too deep into that stuff, but I love how he's presented in the Ultimates. I love how he was presented in 1602. I like him as an adaptable character because making a choice for him to fit in somewhere tends to be good story and design moments. Well, I think that unusually for the Fox franchise, which I think did damage to a lot of characters. Yeah. Toad is one who was almost rescued yeah. By the films, because he had been so thoroughly marginalized in the comics by that point that bringing him back and it's Ray Park, who has gone a bit off the deep end recently. Oh, but, has he? Uh, yeah, stuff with his ex-wife that was not good. Okay. We don't have to get into it. Okay. But point is, he was fresh off being Darth Maul. He was a pretty well-received stuntman actor. And so having him do these fun stunts as a version of Toad who was not 
physically unattractive. Yeah. I think it did a lot to rehabilitate the character for fans. And so when the comics then made an attempt to... So there's that whole... It's called X-Men Forever, not to be confused with the Claremont X-Men Forever, which is his bizarre alternate timeline that they let him do in the aughts. The first X-Men Forever is this weird storyline where... Toad and Mystique and some other people get caught up in an adventure where they travel through time and whatnot. And in a retcon, we learn about Toad as an infant being experimented on by Dr. Marco, Juggernaut's father, in the Black Womb Project. Yeah. That's why his mutation is so unstable and why he looks different sometimes and things like that. And what it results in is they turn the character into a version that's more like the movie version. Yeah. He gets the tongue. He gets the acid spit. He gets a more superhero-y comics appearance. At the same time that they turn Mystique into the Rebecca Romaine scales Mystique. That lasts for Mystique about a month. She reverts to type very quickly. But for Toad, it kind of stuck. I mean, the the version from the movies became the comics version pretty much going forward, except that sometimes he's drawn, especially more recently, as, again, more of a short, squat, goblin-y character. But the powers and aesthetic definitely shifted to the movie version and never quite came back. You know, that makes me think of two things. One is that, you know, that fucker eats a bird on screen. That shit's cool. I love that. <laughs> he eats that dang bird that comes And up. we find out what happens to a toad when it's struck by lightning. Best line in an X-Men movie. I, I mean, we're, we're all talking about it still. But the other thing that made me think of is that I, I this made me realize what I do think a good use for that character is. It's like, I actually think pairing Toad with Mystique is a really great pairing because I like to think of Toad as someone who's like, let me help you, you know? I think of Toad as being like, I will team up with you. I will help. Is sort of an idea of him that makes... Whereas Mystique's whole deal is like, now I will cause problems on purpose. Like, that is her whole... She is a chaos agent. Yeah, and he's like, I will I will do that, you know? That's why I think the movies are not good to Mystique, because they make her a henchman, which is not who she's ever been. Yeah, I was... I, was, I mean, I think she... That design is so cool in it's the movie. It's brilliant. I mean, the design is brilliant. Rebecca Romaine is great with the limited amount of lines they give her. Yeah. And the face acting she does throughout is sensational. Yeah. But the character is just not Mystique. I mean, that's yeah. the problem, you know? And then the, the Jennifer Lawrence version... Uh, I mean... We don't even have to get into it, but it's that character is not... Mystique at all. I stopped watching those movies because I was getting too upset. <laughs> and I was yeah. like, and I was like, you know what? These movies, they're just not for me. They're this not, is not for the me. version of X-Men I like. And right. I don't want to be in a position of telling people why they shouldn't, why like, they the shouldn't like, like it. Like. Yeah. Because it's, and then they're just, it's just because I have ideas of the X-Men that like aren't being reflected on the screen or are being partially reflected so i'm just taking myself out it of, became like, too frustrating for me also i i agree yeah. i was stunned at how much i enjoyed days of future past because it's a good movie and i just truly i switched off my brain i was like pretend these are not the x-men characters that you care about yeah. and it's a very fun movie but 
when you turn your X-Men brain back on, you're like, who is this unrecognizable mystique? Why are they doing Days of Future Past? And it's about Wolverine instead of Shadowcat. Like, there yeah. are so many things about it that are distressing. <laughs> but the thing about those movies is that they brought a lot of people into the comics. Yeah. It's like the cartoon that way. I got frustrated with the cartoon sometimes. The cartoon was a lot more faithful to the comics than the movies. And I still, but you know, just because I was a nerd who had this very specific idea of these characters, the plots being changed around isn't what bothers me. Yeah. What bothers me is when the characters don't feel true to themselves. Yeah. Toad in those movies is fun because it feels like Toad well enough. It does, yeah. He's just in the first one, right? Because I think uh, yeah. after the toad gets struck by lightning, we never see him again. Which I think is great. The implication is that she just fucking killed him. What well, a great is, death. Yeah, I mean, great. I do think in the back of the original trade paperback of the first new X-Men, Morrison writes their original or presents their original pitch to Marvel. Yeah, it's at the end of the omnibus, yeah. Yes. I can't remember which trade it's in, but and yeah. I, and I always really respond to it because they say the movies got it right. The X-Men aren't superheroes. The leather was right. The paramilitary thing is right. They are a paramilitary unit based out of a school. Framing them in that way is cool and modern. And that really stuck with me. And that's why I never really got into the Joss Whedon one because uh, Cyclops is immediately like, we have to go back to superheroes. You know, we, we've been scaring people. <sighs> yeah, it's regressive. It annoys me. I don't mind when they're in superhero costumes, but I think you do have to approach them differently and i think that what krakoa does is really smart yes you know even now when scott and gene are like we need to have the x-men and that's a great beat what the x-men are going to represent as agents of a nation state of a minority nation state is very different from what a regular superhero is and it finally for the first time will make them perhaps a relevant contrast to the avengers which has never worked before but if the avengers are yeah. an arm of state power which they always have been then for the x-men to be an arm of mutant state power is very interesting yep but i'm, I'm not sure i trust crossovers to handle that well because they just historically never really have bringing up krakoa does make me think that i've been um i, I haven't read everything but i've i've read a bunch of trades of um me and my friend david odyssey have decided to like buy different versions of our chain with each other so we've read a bunch of the um, Excalibur and the Marauders and some of the X-Men, some of the New Mutants. Um, but I love Pyro and the Marauders. Mm -hmm. I think that take of Pyro is so fun. And I feel like, and also like this dude's crazy. He's a fucking yeah. madman. He's gonna, he's gonna do whatever. He'll like, he loves Jesus' powers. Good die, mate. I'm gonna set people on fire. Like that's yeah. all he does really is, is yeah, he loves it. And he's like down, and even in the, the in Freedom Force, his relationship with Mystique, I always found very cool. Like, he likes to be there. He knows why he's there. And I feel like a version of Toad who is like that in the Krakoa world would work. A fun thing that's been happening kind of in the background is we've seen him hanging around with Exodus. Oh, yeah, yeah. Cool. So, like, sometimes in ways that seem a little bit like maybe they're, I don't know. They just, sometimes they seem like they're vibing in a way where I'm just like, you know what? Love that for them. Hope they're having a great time. It's this sort of subplot that's building that Exodus is kind of indoctrinating. Exodus is indoctrinating children mm. into this religion that he's kind of building around Magneto and around the other Omega level mutants in which Wanda is the great Satan. Yeah. <laughs> we see him doing this. And then we also see him like casual sometimes. And when he's casual and hanging around, Toad is sort of around. 
I think that could be a really fun pairing because they're both people who devoted themselves to Magneto's philosophy, but who Magneto has kind of dropped as they became less advantageous to his own personal brand. Yeah, and, and build if you are building a cult of personality, you just need someone who hops. And you need right. someone who hops superhumanly well. You need someone who <laughs> yeah. hop too. That's true. That is true. That's true. And do what you say. And I think that Toad is the kind of person who instinctively looks for a bigger personality to attach himself to. And in the Wolverine and the X-Men period, it's sort of Wolverine, right? Yeah. Now that we're on Krakoa, Exodus is an obvious candidate for that. Should we talk about Wolverine the X-Men? Should we talk about... uh, I suppose we should talk about Wolverine the X-Men. So, I'll be candid. I don't like Wolverine and the X-Men. It is not a run of the X-Men I particularly enjoy. I understand why people like it. A lot of the time, it is fun in a way that the X-Men hadn't been for a while because the Utopia stuff was so dire and the decimation was so dire that I understand that having an X-Men book that just was kind of fun was enjoyable. I don't buy Wolverine as the headmaster of a school, like, point blank. Yeah. I didn't really buy the schism. That was part of the problem for me. I don't like the Hellfire kids. No, yeah, I'm not a big fan of them as villains. Honestly, like, I love Duggan's Marauders, but those kids being back, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, they're, so far it's been fine, but I was just like, I thought we were done with these children. Yeah. They've just never been my favorites. And... It was a lot of Quentin Quire for me. I get that. I get that. And I think, um, I mean, I really, this was, a, this was a time in X-Men when like I was, I would buy some issues every once in a while and then some event would happen that would like make following feel insane. So I'd end up just reading these at honestly like Midtown Comics and then not buying them, to be honest. Um, I would do a <laughs> lot of that um, at this time. And I am glad to be back where I am buying stuff and supporting and supporting the comics but at the time, I just I remember seeing that and being like, oh, this is fun. I like that it's a school. Wolverine as a headmaster is not like my f- favorite version of Wolverine, but it's a nice I mean, reason. Wolverine naming a school after Gene just to be rude to Scott is very funny. Yes. That's good. And the use of Kitty was smart, except mm-hmm. for the arc where she gets impregnated by the brood. But other than that... Yeah. Uh... And I do, I do like Husk. So this is the thing, yeah. I do like Husk in Generation X. I think those powers are really cool and are so open to being played with, which they were well in this. Well, they were. They were played with in a way that was, I don't know, I I, I thought was exciting. I, oh gosh, who who's Draco writer? Who's the Draco writer? Chuck Austin. <laughs> Chuck Austin. I read those, I was reading a lot of Chuck Austin when I first, after like Grant Morrison. Yeah, was yeah. At the same time. So I was reading that stuff and her, her and Angel, is bad, but I like that she was around. Like I always think she is like, serves a cool function, and the pairing of them together just like something about it. I feel like is an exciting pairing, and just to see that you play mean out Husk the and way, Toad. yeah. And, the, and I thought it played out in a way that I was exciting to follow. I was excited to follow. I think was nuts. I don't need any more stories of like a princess and a little slime ball, <laughs> but like that's Please, what and that's ma'am, what it was. I just want you to love me. I just need it, ma'am. I'm, it's I'm all such, right. I'm just a tiny little toad, and I need to make statues out of your shed skin and have tea parties with them, and then you should love me. Here's my thing with yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> I've never particularly cared for Husk. Yeah. Um, 
I was never a Gen X person. I read it on and off, but this is just an aesthetic difference between us probably. But much like Toad has never really grabbed me visually, I am not a big Chris Bocciolo guy. I am, oh, yeah. I like him. Yeah. yeah. The cartoonier stuff has never been my thing. I think Bocciolo is very, very talented. It's just not my aesthetic. Yeah. Like, even when it's on a book I really love, like the Mike Carey X-Men, I'm just sort of like, this is fantastic. But it would be like one of my favorite books ever if like Phil Jimenez drew this. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like, it's I just I have a different aesthetic. And then when Humberto Ramos takes over Gen X and it becomes even more cartoony, I just like fully check out. So it was not, it was just not my book. Husk to me also, her powers gross me out. Yeah, they're gross. That's why Which I like them. I, yeah, that's why you like them. That's that's what I'm saying. It's I like, like skin totally, too. I think right. skin's cool. I, skin also grosses me out. I don't want to read about those characters. Marrow <laughs> freaks me the fuck out. I don't well, like, I'd it. like, Mero. I like Mero. I like Marrow. I'm sure you do. <laughs> and I fully get that it's that's a me problem. It's like a body horror issue that I have yeah, yeah. with those characters where I'm just like, I don't want to read about this. The one thing I always said about Husk, and this was like a very monkey's paw moment for me, is I was like, the way you fix Husk, because this was after Austin, which most people would agree derailed that character pretty yeah. extensively. I was like, the way you deal with Husk is Husk is not a sexy, beautiful character. Yeah. Husk is a character where you make it funny. Like, Husk should be stressed out so her face falls off and lands in her soup. Like, Husk yeah. should be a comedy character. You can have serious storylines with her, but you should play her more the way that you play a character whose power is intrinsically funny. Because yeah. the way to make it not gross is to lean into how gross it is and make it humorous. Yeah, And so I think that's what the Wolverine and the X-Men, Jason Aaron Husk, was supposed to do. And it's what I had always wanted them to do with her. Like I said, it was a monkey's paw moment for me because if it was just her powers have become uncontrollable and so we're doing gross Cronenberg body horror stuff, that I would think is great. My issue with it is that they paired it by having her go crazy yeah, yeah which is just never my favorite beat for a female character and in this case was done in a way that i found to be yeah shallow yeah i mean i think that's definitely true and when looking at some of that stuff recently seeing how much of that is this sort of i connect to as a sort of very little boy like i'm gross and you gave me a chance and I'm going to do the noble thing and say, you're actually too good for me. You know, like that sort of whole behavior is very, um, it's a little nasty. It's a little toxic. Right. To it has a little bit of, there's, there's a very, like, I think that it's a very good storyline for Toad. I don't for think it's sure. a good storyline <laughs> yeah. for Husk. Yeah. And I am generally resistant to storylines where I feel like a female character is getting junked in the service of a male character, which is what it felt like for me with her, you know, it was pointed out to me. I mean, last week when Corey McCreary and I were thinking about the prompt was like, who should be the therapist on Krakoa? Mm. And Corey suggested Husk. And I was like, Husk is a mess. I would never trust. And people pointed out on Twitter and whatnot, Husk is pursuing a PhD in psychology. Husk oh. became the guidance counselor at the school after the arc with Toad, after they right, figured right. out what was wrong with her. I understand that. And I, I do get that that's something people have tried to do with the character. The problem is, I think that... Wolverine and the X-Men did so much damage to that character 
that it's hard for me to buy like the idea that she's become a therapist is like a it's almost a joke yeah the way it's presented it's like i want to help people so that no one goes crazy from their powers the way that i did great plan i haven't seen it i mean in the strange nx they treat it more seriously I think that's because Christina Strain is a woman who looked at Husk and obviously had affection for Generation X as a book since she was writing a new volume of Generation X and looked at what had happened with Husk and was like, this is a sexist storyline and tried to salvage it a little bit. But I think that there's a lot more work that needs to be done with that character. And I think that overall the storyline was extraordinarily damaging to her. And at the time, I didn't super care because, again, it's not a character I was that invested in, but it was one of the things... I didn't care on a personal level of like, oh, they're doing something to my faves. But I cared on the level of... (sighs) It felt to me like the worst excesses of Joss Whedon. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where the Xander-type character... (laughs) Yeah. ...is obsessed with this unattainable, beautiful girl, and her storyline is sublimated to that nerd misfit character it happens exactly xander topher in dollhouse is probably the ultimate evolution of that and that character at least was a little more interesting i mean dollhouse is a mess but there was a lot of interesting character work done on that show because the actors were so talented i mean i think you're exactly right and i think it turned me off in that way because i think i just was sort of like I've seen this storyline play out and I think it's always disastrous to the female character. It felt to me like, and this is perhaps because I've just never cared that much about Toad. I was like, I don't even care about Husk, but I can't believe you're doing this to Husk to prop up Toad of yeah. all characters. Yeah, I, I think that's very true. I'm watching uh, Buffy for the first time right now. I'm in season two. Fascinating, because I don't think it's aged well. I lo- that show is like one of the most influential things of my adolescence. And I think Angel has held up really well. I find Buffy, I mean, you remember in college, I taught a, oh, yes, cor- you did. I taught a course on Buffy. <laughs> yes, you did, you did. That show, I've seen it like 20 times. I think that the politics of it have aged poorly. Y- yes, in without a, lot of a doubt. I mean, there's, a, there's, and Xander in particular is He's like this. He's aged the worst of all the characters, yeah. And I find it very fascinating because it was this type of, this type of guy was so valued or or presumed to be valuable in that era. You know, like this sort of like. The ducky, like the beta male who the girl doesn't notice, like that yes. thing. And so I do see that Toad storyline as like, they are fitting him in this position, which to me is just like, this is just a part of, mm, how do I say this? I understand what this position is, and I think it sucks, and it's boring that it has to happen again. And so I appreciate as a Toad fan that he has given any sort of plotline at all, and the fact that that's where it lands bums me out, which is why I'm glad they made him go... They're like, okay, he well, he sucks still. He like kidnaps young Cyclops after that. He like, yeah, they dig into that. Yeah, they do that whole arc when the teens are time traveling, which which I like. I I, I was into that stuff. Lots of people were. It was just not. <laughs> no, listen, I, that sounds so bitchy. No, no, no. Not, no it, it's because I've listened to podcasts and I've heard you talk. No, about no, it no. It's yeah. like there are things about it I really like. Again, I've said many times. I think that the teen gene stuff is extremely good. I didn't care that much about it because well because frankly the claremont team is my team yeah yeah the original five are not my focus i think warren's hot but i don't 
otherwise enormously care about those characters. I care about Scott and Jean mostly in how they interact with the later characters. Yeah. Like the second Genesis characters and the characters that Claremont brings in in the 80s. All of this hyper focus on the 60s X-Men to me was just not something I gave a shit about. So that was I think the, that's fair. Yeah. That was the issue for me mostly. But it led to a number of interesting plots that you could only do with that. Like Greg Rucka having Cyclops go on an adventure as a teenager with Corsair yeah. is really smart. Giving them a bond as a father and son that they never had that Cyclops now can remember. Yeah is cool things like that are cool having you know the bobby and gene thing which was very controversial i think is great i thought was cool i thought i i i've heard many people frustrate with how that was done but i and i i'd love to hear those thoughts from someone (laughs) again but when i interacted with it i thought it was really well done and cool yeah i think it's good so that stuff is all great i do think that similarly it created a really interesting toad storyline yeah, because you have a storyline where it's and now if I was a Toad fan, I might be particularly if I was a fan of the Wolverine and the X-Men iteration of Toad, I would not be happy that they regressed him so dramatically for sure. But it is interesting because Toad is a character who always sort of regresses to the mean. Yeah. Right. If you look at the full history, it's like Toad is introduced as a toady, as like this sniveling character who accepts and and revels in abuse from his master. Mm-hmm. Over the course of the 60 stories, through their experience with the stranger, he grows a backbone and rejects Magneto. Mm-hmm. But then when we meet him in the 70s, he's suicidal because he doesn't have anyone leading him and doesn't know what to do with his life and feels like he's useless. Mm-hmm. Then he spends most of his time stalking the Scarlet Witch. Yes. Which is a through line from the 60s when both he and Mastermind were leching on the Scarlet Witch a lot. And Pietro always had to be like, stop leching on my sister, you gross freaks. Yeah. Absolutely vile. But where Mastermind felt, I mean, Mastermind's a rapist. Like, that's, like, Mastermind is a bad dude. I think you, I first heard you say that, and maybe it was a Jean Grey episode, and I honestly had never even thought about it like that before. And it really opened my eyes about that character and realizing, oh, yeah, I mean, obviously, like, I've. Because it's there, but you're not supposed to think that deeply about it. Yeah. But it's there. Yeah. And it's there from the beginning because he's always like he makes himself more handsome with his illusions. Mm-hmm. And he is always saying disgusting things about the Scarlet Witch, like from the jump. And she is uncomfortable being in a room with him. Yeah. I think the reason that it's not as obvious as like Dr. Psycho, the Wonder Woman villain, or as Mesmero, who is the other character mm. in X-Men who's just like a rapist, is because mastermind has been used sparingly since the dark phoenix saga because gene overloading his mind in that story is such an iconic moment that i think people are hesitant to bring him back yeah and then they introduced his daughters in the aughts the ladies mastermind and they've mostly just been used since he's on the cover of an upcoming issue of hellions though so i am yeah i am fascinated to see what zeb wells will do with that character because Mm. i think zeb is perhaps the most skilled writer alive today when it comes to taking weird d-list characters and giving them a context that makes them fascinating so i'm interested in that but yeah mastermind represents a real sexual threat 
Toad always comes across as ineffectual. Like he is so sexless that his attentions directed at the Scarlet Witch in the 60s don't feel serious in the same way. Yeah. It doesn't feel like something she needs to worry about. In the 70s, they kick it into gear. I mean, he becomes an active stalker. And by this point, she and Quicksilver are very well-established members of the Avengers. And she and the Vision are married. Wow. I See, this is a, this is a period I did not dig deep into. And hearing about it, it makes complete sense and it sucks. <laughs> I mean, yeah. like, I mean, this is the seventies into the eighties because, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. yeah, like Vision and the Scarlet Witch, all of that stuff. This makes me feel like when I return to like sort of the Wolfman Beast, like Beast Boy as a character has always been like an interesting character to me in mm-hmm. adaptations, and returning to the Wolfman stuff, hearing how he just like he is like verbally objectifying and verbally assaulting. All of the female members of his team constantly, at every yeah, and it's this thing that I feel like I've re- I, 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 I am seeing more and more returning to some of the stuff that I, I liked a lot as a kid, being like these little boys, right, are being so bad, and they are always given a frame of like ineffectual boys like, will be beast boys boy. because and, like, beast boy would never do anything like toad can't do anything Beast Boy would never do anything to hurt those girls so it's fine that he says these things about them all the time yeah yeah and, like, stop being funny beast boy you know like one of the things i love most about the gene and bobby thing where gene is like bobby you're gay is that it, what triggers her to do it is that he's objectifying magic yeah He's talking about how hot their professor is. Like, oh, our professor is like such a hot piece of ass. And she's just like, Bobby, can you come over here for a second? We need to have a conversation. Yeah. She's just like, what are you doing? Because I wasn't telepathic before, so I didn't realize this until now. But, like, you're gay. So, like, stop yeah. objectifying women to overcompensate for your anxiety about being gay. That's fucked up. It's so rare to have a character called on that in a way that feels like they're actually being held to account. Because yes. the jokester of the team who is like your little brother but also wants to steal your panties is like such a trope that we're just supposed to accept. Yeah. And it's not a good trope, you know? Like it's yeah. not a trope that we should continue to allow to just happen. My favorite thing about the way the scarlet witch plot goes is that finally he like breaks in to do whatever it is he plans to do which is unclear i don't think he knows either because like his mentality is so childish that i don't think he quite has a plan but he sees that she's eight months pregnant (laughs) oh really and he's like oh my god you're disgusting really that's how it (laughs) yes (laughs) that sucks He's like, oh, my God, you're hideous and like never talks about her again. This is something that sucks. And this is something that <laughs> I mean, it makes me think of Caliban's storyline with Kitty Pride. It's very similar with these like these sort of obsessive creeps. As much as I like freaks and creeps and like nasty characters, it yeah. always is like the line of playing of these are nasty characters into like these are harassing people, but we want you to. Right, these are sexual predators. Is a different. It, it, there's a level at which you go like, wait, and the husk plot yeah. for me, having husk reciprocate. It feels like the writers do. It feels like the writer. Is it making feels the like the writer there. made it happen because yeah, yeah. the way that that storyline begins, it's just like his obsession with the Scarlet Witch. Mm. He's like stealing her shed skins and doing things with them. Yeah, which that's is true. Up. That's true. I forgot about that. Yeah. 
that's okay. So I may have to like caveat some stuff I said before because I forgot about that. I went and looked back at it in advance of this episode because I was like, I need to remember exactly why I hated this. Yeah. It's not that their relationship doesn't have sweet elements to it. And it's not that like it doesn't because by the end of it, he has grown a lot as a character. I just yeah. think that her character was so completely compromised to do that. And Again, it's a character I don't even care about, but the gender politics of it just really set my teeth on edge. Yeah, I, I would love to strip Toad of um, any romantic and sexualized plotline and just make him a dude who wants to help. And that's my <laughs> Toad. <laughs> I mean, I think that honestly, there's merit to that approach. Because like I said, yeah. with that storyline with Wanda, once he sees her pregnant, it's like the reality of sex frightens him yeah it's very incel-y where it's like but like incels there is a sexually violent component with toad it does feel almost childlike like he wouldn't know what to do with a woman if she wanted to do something i wanted you to pat my head i broke right like he just mom, wants... i broke in i don't know what i'm doing here but mom i'm broke into this is not this is my toad mom i broke into avengers headquarters because i want to pat on the head that's my toad yeah i mean i <laughs> I even think it would be interesting to, you know, there have been a couple of characters people have asked, like, do you see this character as potentially asexual? I'm just, it's just not, my frame of reference is so far from that because I'm just, I'm just a, a horny guy. <laughs> I I just think about sex a lot. So yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. my, it's not my like, you know, initial, that's, why do you think I'm so into the Claremont X-Men? Because everything yeah. that happens in that book is just like weird sexual politics. It's hard for me to to deliver any kind of determination on that stuff. Yeah. But I think Toad, if there is like this is the problem, right? Is like there's always a temptation to put that onto characters who aren't attractive. Hmm. Because it solves the problem of like no one wants to have sex with Toad. Yeah. But I think he's different from someone like Caliban. Like Caliban is unattractive, but Caliban definitely wants to have sexual relationships. Caliban yeah. wants that. Toad feels like a character who actually is, it's not something he considers. And then when it's posed to him, he's like, whoa, whoa, I wasn't talking about that. I just wanted a spooch or like, I just wanted to hold your hand and go to the party. Like it doesn't feel yeah. as though. And that's why I think that his revulsion at Wanda's pregnancy is like kind of an interesting beat because he's been stalking her relentlessly. And, the second that he sees like a tangible representation of sexuality in her, his fantasy, whatever like courtly love, non-sexual romantic fantasy he's developed in his head completely disappears. Yeah. It's taken from him and he has no further interest in her whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, you think the, the thing, the guy who was abandoned by Magneto and then wants to start another like brotherhood that to me tells something of like you the only thing you want is a feeling you don't want anything right real you want a feeling of something yeah you know? and so like the, i don't i just raised the asexual thing because like what's complicated there is i don't want to suggest like this character should be the asexual one because he's emotionally stunted like that's because yeah, yeah, yeah. that's not good eye like the, but it does feel to me like sex is not something he thinks about so that's just, I don't know, food for thought a little bit, I guess. And I think that that could be an interesting place to take that character. If you're interested in his psychology. Yes. In who this guy is. It would be a, a good way of retroactively kind of defanging the creepier eras of the character. Because if 
it is a more innocent desire for affection and for romance as opposed to I'm stalking this woman to try and force myself on her, which is kind of how it occasionally comes across. Yeah. I mean, I think that with him and Caliban, there's a very interesting, it feels almost like self-loathing aspect to these comic book characters, this specific type of character, because so many comic book writers and comic book readers are young men who were not seen as classically attractive, right? Yeah. That's part of why the power fantasy of superhero comics is these perfect men. And it's also why for me, and I know for many people, like Nightcrawler popped so well because he he was aware of his appearance. He was managing it. He felt... The fact that everyone liked Nightcrawler meant a lot to me. That mm-hmm. he was like Logan's friend. That he was like Aurora and Peter's brother. You know, like he made people laugh. Like everyone Even was like, Logan, who doesn't like anybody, Kurt's his best friend. Yes. The idea that like the freak is the one that the whole family loved. You know, yeah. almost like an ex- and the, the whole family did not love each other all the time. But like, no, but he's the constant. That meant a lot to me as a kid who felt you know, like a freak, um, <laughs> like many X-Men fans. Right. And I think every version of that that I see played out is always something I find at least immediately compelling. I always find it immediately compelling when I see those types of characters put. And so often they twist into this nasty misogynist right. space of a stalker or of a sort of like, you could ne- I've done this voice a bunch, but it's, it comes up again and again. Like, you could never love me. And the fact that you tell me that you love me means that you shouldn't be with me at all. You know, right. like. It's because I'm dragging you down, babe. Like Exactly. Honestly, a little bit Logan, too. Logan does that sometimes as well. He does do that, too. Well, and the thing about Logan is when he was introduced, he was ugly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a character. The movies affected no character more than they affected Wolverine in ways that are positive and negative for the character yeah in the positive sense he became one of the biggest characters at marvel comics period and that had already been happening over the course of the 90s but to many people after that first movie the x-men and wolverine became synonymous yeah as a concept but also hugh jackman is gorgeous Mm -hmm. and so the comics wolverine steadily became more handsome and taller and less hairy you know, just became sort of a muscular, hairy guy who's sexy, which a lot of people had found Wolverine sexy before that. But the point of Wolverine in the 70s and 80s stories is like Jean is into Wolverine in a very specific way, which is that she can tell Wolverine can fuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Scott, God bless him, does not fuck. Yeah. Like Scott makes love, Wolverine fucks. Jean is is enticed by that, but she doesn't find him attractive physically. Yeah, that's true. She also finds his attitude off-putting. Like she thinks he's an entitled prick. He is, he's very handsy with her in ways that are not appropriate. Mm -hmm. In Inferno, he lays a kiss on her that she does not ask for. And she knocks him on his ass for it. There's something to that storyline that's interesting because Wolverine is almost the triumph of that character, but he triumphs by becoming a traditionally attractive person. Nightcrawler, who is the freak, like still has 12 pack abs and is like a gymnast and is Errol Flynn and would be the biggest ladies man in the world, except that he's a blue demon guy. Yeah. So those characters feel substantively different to me. Those are power fantasies. Those are wish fulfillment. 
characters like Toad and Caliban, that's how almost the misfit reader or writer, straight male reader or writer, sees himself. Yes, I, I, I in a negative way. No, I agree. I agree with it. I think there's I. Look, I'm I'm a straight cis man, and so speaking of this, that's why I like talking to you about this. This because is a I flat th- scan issue. Well, because I do think it's like a, it's a it's like a straight thing. This sort of like that's actually that's that's a fair to say. That's something I connect to as like a, as a straight man who grew up, you know, in the culture that we grew up with, being like, there's good guys and then there's bad guys, and if I can't be a good guy, then there's something like then I got to find my way in, you know? And if yeah. my way in is to like, can you pity me that I'm not a good guy? If that's, if that's, right. that's an impulse. That is a very real impulse. It's a very toxic impulse. It's the Xander. Yeah, exactly. It's the Xander. The nice guy. It's like, it's been talked to death at this point, but when people first started analyzing that phenomenon, I want to say like in the aughts-ish, it was pretty revelatory because for so long that was seen as a virtuous characteristic like the idea of i'll just show her that i'm the good you know it's it's archie and reggie it goes back all the way can you pity me into being hot like can you can i yeah through my power of pity can i get you to see can me i as a break version? you down into finding me attractive by being nice yeah oh yeah Th- this is a this is a uh... or by being funny mm-hmm. all these all these all these are techniques. I mean, these are techniques of trying to get attention, which I definitely get. Well, and one yeah. of the things, like not to turn this into Connor Psychoanalyzes His Friends podcast. Go for it. One of the things that I think has been most gratifying about knowing you for 15 years now, which is longer than I've known a lot of people. Yeah. I remember when you were a very insecure or nervous 18-year-old, you yeah. know? And yeah, yeah. I got to watch you, not that we were ever like, you know, best friends who spent all our time together, but you found comedy, mm-hmm. you found an outlet, you found a creative outlet that you were good at, <laughs> Yeah, you found women who found you attractive for who you were and not for whatever front you felt the need to put up, you know, mm-hmm. I've seen you blossom in that way. I think that the guy you are now, I mean, I wouldn't have you on the podcast if I thought you were that kind of guy. You know what yeah. I mean? But like, but I think in part, listen, you're a straight white man who chose to go to Oberlin. I mean, there's a very specific... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I do think... So I think that you're conscious of this stuff and you have taken steps to grow as a person in ways that are productive. And part of what's frustrating about characters like Toad, because of the nature of comic books, they are frozen to some extent because you're always going to have a writer who wants to regress them to a place before the character growth. And sometimes, even when the character does grow, it's in a story like Wolverine and the X-Men where by the end you're like, did he learn something or is he just doing the nice guy thing still for pity? Like, what is he actually doing? I, I, I think two things. Oh, a few things. First of all, I appreciate Yeah, there's a lot that. there. Thank so you. feel yeah, free. Yeah. Unpack. No, I, I, I hear that and I appreciate that. And I do agree with that. I do. And I do think if Toad went to Oberlin, he would be in a social situation where he would have to... <laughs> be forced figure... to self-examine a little bit, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I do think there's, you know, everyone... We knew each other in a freshman dorm, which is a very charged Listen, like, space. I was an un 
unbearable 18 year old. So I'm not trying to listen. Anybody who enjoys this podcast and finds me to be a fun person to talk to. Let me tell you, as an 18 year old, I mean, I was fun to talk to because I would put on a our friend Elena. Oh, yes. yeah. <laughs> our friend Elena Gambino, who is a brilliant professor at Rutgers, who is just a genius and who will never listen to this podcast. But shout outs to Elena Gambino. No relation to the Gambino crime family. She used to call it Top Hat and Monocle Connor, which was like there would be a moment where there would be enough people in the room because she was my best friend in college. And there would be enough people in the room suddenly where she was like, you turn off and this person who is performing turns on. And one of the harder things about this podcast for me has been resisting the impulse to like do that because I literally have an audience here. Yeah, I mean, I I get this and I feel like to talk about Toad and comics and myself and masculinity and growing up to try to bring that all into one space. I feel like one thing I love about the X-Men, one thing I love about performing, one thing I love about comedy is that I've always wanted to play pretend. I've always wanted to not be myself and to get out of my body and to be something else and hopefully something exciting you know um and reading x-men as a kid was a way of accessing that desire to be seen and desire to be seen with something special and like spectacular and and with mutant powers like something that's you that's just you it may not be perfect but that thing is just you and only you can do it and going and then being a young boy who like tried to find the thing that could get the attention that was special through playing music or being loud or being um whatever type of thing you can imagine a teenager being, you know, at, the, at that time, that stuff is like incomplete and not you. It's, it's pushing yourself forward. And I do think there's this masculine idea of like, I can't be soft or I can't be weird in a certain way, or I can't be, I can't be something. There's always this idea that you can't be something when at, or that you should be something else. Right. And I think that like one thing and being in a space like Oberlin, not to shout out this fucking college, <laughs> Yeah, like, no, please, like, if it, we'd be here all day if we started getting into the pros and cons of that place. There was a social value into sort of owning yourself. There was, like, pe- people, like, we wanted, like, you're, it was sort of a promise, like, you're not cool unless we see you be the real you. Well, because it was very much a no one is cool here, so it was it was actually fascinating because yeah, I think some people, I mean, the people who were, like, who were cool, there was sort of like a hipster thing that yeah. did feel performative, mm-hmm. I think. That was always my anxiety was I was like, I'm not fashionable like that. I'm not aloof enough to like be cool at these parties. I'm just gonna like chain cigs outside and tell jokes and like be like, you know, whatever. I think that outside of that sort of cool factor that was like artists being cool, most of it was none of us were cool. Yeah. None of us were cool when we were in high school. Even if we were popular like theater kids or whatever, we were still like called a faggot in the hallways. Like, you know, or we were the ugly kid or whatever. We were the fat kid. There was very much a that to it. And that I think enabled people in that environment to examine who they were and to be honest about that with other people. And honestly, I think that's what Xavier's school is for these characters, right? Yeah. That's why the X-Men appeals so much 
to readers who have felt that way, to nerds, to gay people, to people who feel for whatever reason like the person they are is not enough for the people around them because the X-Men offers a promise of a world where you and other people who feel that way can be together as a family and save the world. Yeah, and I also think that two things this makes me think of. One, um, moving to New York to do comedy, I soon realized that there were people who were doing comedy who were like scared to be seen as weird and realizing that I could be like, I don't care. I want to express what I want to express. And that's important is like that slowly built and then failing at doing that until I got better at comedy. You know, like, <laughs> like that builds confidence in yourself. You're like, I'm just going to be, I have to be, you know, you can't really pretend you, you can only, there's only an ownership to who you are and bringing back to X-Men, like, Nightcrawler's his teleportation smells. He can't go somewhere unless he sees it. These powers are not superhuman. They are personal. Right. They have limitations. You know. They have like Cyclops has to wear those glasses. You know. Uh, Rogue. I I really did like the Rogue um, portrayal in the movies. I found her personality drippy, but I thought that the movies emphasized the horror of her power in a very real way. There is a problem with her power. You know, these problem, these powers are not gifts. Sorry, do you hear that siren? Yeah, it's fine. Okay. okay. Um, those powers are not gifts. Those powers have flaws. You have to own those limitations to be compelling characters and to then enter the idea of being a superhero. And I think that like that was always what made me respond to X-Men more than almost any other comic thing is because their powers had these they have drawbacks there's a thorn to the rose always yeah i was rereading some of the original new mutants there's stuff like that oh like cannonball can't turn you know right um the new mutants are very much like that they all have very situational powers and even the ones who are really powerful who get introduced a little bit later like magic magic's power comes with a pretty significant drawback which is that yeah. every time she uses it she loses more of her soul yeah even the really powerful character, like Storm is the most powerful X-Man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Pretty point blank. To the point where her most interesting character work was done in the years when Claremont took the powers away and yeah. said, what are you without the powers? Exactly. And then let her, by finding her truest self, get those powers back. That's one of the most triumphant moments ever in comics in Fall of the Mutants when she gets those powers back. The thing with Storm is the first thing Claremont does when he gets control of the character after giant size is give her the claustrophobia because exactly. then yeah. her need to soar in the elements, her need to create these sun showers inside and take a, mm -hmm. you know, a sky bath. Like in part it's cause she's hot and we want to get her naked for the readers, but also she can't fathom being contained. Yeah. She doesn't want to be contained. He looked at this character who was all about soaring and being in the open air and not wearing much clothing and was like, you know what? I'm going to give her a backstory where the trauma that happened to her involved her being confined. Yeah. And that makes it human because then the drawback of the power is if she's not using the power, she feels constrained. And to bring this back to like masculinity is that that perception of oneself as like a powerless freak who then has to like f find their way into attention is based especially the older you get and especially as a straight white cis man 
becomes a way to ignore power that you that the world that you do possess right and that's and that comes back to this toad thing too that we were talking about this sort of like in this xander thing it's like you can frame yourself in all these flawed ways and you can feel all these feelings of insecurity and feel um and feel your limitations that doesn't always make it true especially in this society and so realizing that you can't like and i'll speak personally realizing that the way i saw myself in those sort of terms in these terms that we're talking about with the, the, the parts of me that really responded to the X-Men were just like, not fair, you know, not fair to myself and also not fair to the people I interact with and not honest to be like, why would I, fra- why would one frame themselves that way when it's just so not a part, not, it's not taking at face value who you really are. It's letting your insecurities do the talking for you and expecting other people to see that that is a, uh, a good thing that like you were leading with your insecurity toads like i'm just a toad i'm, I'm just insecurity. a toad and it's like okay but at a certain point you're being self-indulgent exactly exactly like oh i'm just a toad no one loves me that's like that at a certain point you're not being self-effacing you're being self-aggrandizing because you're advertising how humble you are mm-hmm. and there's no actual humility in that it's like it's uh going to therapy for the first time maybe like a year and a half, two years ago, and realizing how many things I would say over and over again and being like, it's just so boring that I keep saying this thing. And the more I'm saying it, the more I'm like, that's not even true. That's just like a thing you say about yourself. That's just a thing I say, right. I've said about myself since forever. I guess it made sense to say about myself then, but it doesn't really make sense to say about now. This is stupid, (laughs) you know, like being able to brush that stuff away. Um, I think, I don't know. I'm glad we were talking about this because it does, for me, very much connect to the X-Men. Well, I was like, why do you want to talk about Toad, Tim? Let's get deep. You know what I mean? Because this is such a weird character for you to come up with first. A lot of people, I have to get to their third or fourth choice because I'm like, oh, I have someone lined up for that character or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You were just like, Toad. I'm like, no one has claimed Toad. Well, We I, are good to go. Part of it I knew I was like, I knew, like I said, like Apocalypse. But that's a little bit fake self-effacing isn't it you're like i don't feel you're saying you didn't feel like you were the right person to have the conversation (laughs) with me about apocalypse because you're just a toad tim fuck yeah caught you oh my god we got to a real arc here we really got to an arc here wow yeah (laughs) yeah this is some like narrative uh, uh this is some shit right here I mean, to be honest, though, about that, I just feel like there's people who've read more Apocalypse. No, no, no. I know. I'm just fucking with you. <laughs> but I think... But, but a little bit not fucking with you. But I think, I think you're right. It's just food for thought. I think, you're, I think you're right in that, like, I've... Especially in, like, my character in Rude Tales of Magic and other... And the many characters I play, I find a lot of joy in returning to that space. I find a lot of comfort in returning to that space. I find a lot of flexibility in returning to that space. And in understanding that, like oh, I understand this and I know the way that I want to play with it to make it exciting and interesting and not the same thing. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like finding your place of power. Um, well, that's sort of good. Like we were saying before too. This is great. <laughs> this is good. This is good. I'm enjoying this very much. Why don't we start with reader questions? Let's do it. Jonah Reese McCarty writes, Hello, Connor. I hope you're doing well. My name is Jonah, flat scan fan. Been really enjoying the show. Keep up the good work. Super excited that you are doing an episode on my favorite nasty mutant, Toad. Hell yeah. He's probably the first mutant character I became obsessed with. The 2000 X-Men film was my first exposure to the X-Men. I know, I know. But as a kid, I thought Toad was just the coolest. That movie got me interested in the X-Men and comics in general. Since then, I've been a big fan of Toad in all his iterations. I know you don't need my whole story, but I'm just excited. I have a few questions for you and Mr. Platt. Hopefully one or two might interest you. 
On Krakoa, all mutants have been given a second chance in the new status quo. Is Mortimer more likely to finally self-actualize, or is he inherently prone to self-sabotage? Is there any reconciliation to be had between him and Eric? And what elements of the Silver Age version of the character should be reintroduced to the modern take on Toad? What elements shouldn't? Thanks for your time. I look forward to the episode. So those are all interesting questions. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I first will say, I think we, we said it before, but I think Toad and Mystique is exciting to me. I liked that they were paired together in House of X. Yeah, yes. I thought that, she, that he was on her team with Sabretooth. I was like, that's a good dynamic that they should tease out more. Like I said, I think that the, the Exodus hints that he's hanging out with Exodus, that could become something interesting. He hasn't been super foregrounded in this era, though, so it's mostly theoretical. Yeah, I mean, I do, because of the ultimate stuff, I think the idea of a Toad and Cyclops being friends just, like, excites me and I think is cool. I don't see him with Apocalypse. Um, I don't really see him on the team. Um, I see him... I'm trying to think about other people who would work without being, like, a creepy thing. Um <laughs> I mean, I do, I do think him and Magneto, in terms of what should be back from the '60s, um, and I think him and Magneto, I think re-strengthening whatever that thing is can only be exciting to both characters, to like possibly Toad's benefit and maybe to Magneto's chagrin. You know, the fact that he ever needed someone like Toad says a lot about this freak. You know? Yeah, I think it would be interesting to bring Toad into Sword hmm. because. A little bit of what we're talking about here, Al Ewing is sort of doing with Magneto in Sword with the character of Peepers and the characters of Cortez and Frenzy. There's a lot of analysis in Sword. Have you read Sword yet, by the way? No, you I should. Have not. You would really like it, I think. Although it's mutants in space, but I think it's grounded in a way that, that works. That's cool. But the characters who are on in leadership positions in that organization. Three of them are former lackeys of Magneto. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, and it. Magneto is the one supervising a lot of things with Abigail Brand. But, like, the diplomatic service is headed up by Joanna Cargill from the Acolytes Frenzy. Cortez is heading up one of the departments. And Peepers, who is a Toad-like character from back in the day, is also heading things up. And seeing Magneto interact with these people who have grown beyond their henchmen roles and how he regards each of them very differently has been interesting. So while Toad might not make sense as a character like literally on the sword station, it would be interesting to see, I think, Ewing's Magneto interact with Toad in a storyline of some kind because it's clear that at the very least, this Magneto is thinking about the people who he lured into his cult of personality when he was that guy. Seeing how Toad interacts with Cargill would be interesting. Seeing how Toad interacts with Cortez, who's a sycophant in a different kind of way, would be interesting. Because Toad's sycophant persona was genuine. Yeah. Cortez is a sycophant in a false way. He's just flattering Magneto. He actually doesn't have much respect for Magneto. There's a lot of interplay you could do there that I think would be interesting. I also wonder if, like, him as a, like, I don't know how this would work. I don't, I haven't, I'm not, I don't have a completely comprehensive 
um, I haven't read comprehensively everything that's come out, but I wonder if him as being like, I support the five, like I'll do what the five says. I'm like, I'll serve the five drinks. They need stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. Like he should be do well. And that's why I like the potential with Exodus because like if Exodus does start a cult, like Toad would be great as like, yeah. Hi, welcome to mutant Scientology. Like I'm Toad. I'll be showing you around. Like, I just feel like that would be very. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, come with me. I have to mail these uh, envelopes real quick. I also need to bring the five their lunch. So like, um, and they have fascinating diets. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, it's like, it's like, do you know what Proteus eats? I yeah, bet you can't guess. It's very right. interesting. <laughs> you know, like I think, uh, I think that would work for me. I mean, he, I just don't want, I, I, I don't think he has ever really earned a lead and just him being, but being him helping interesting people in interesting ways, I think is always a good use. For yeah. I similarly would like to see him, do something with the Hellions. Cause again, I think mm. that Zeb Wells is doing, if you haven't read that one, by the way, Tim, that's the book you need to read. Like as soon as we finish recording, cause it's right up your alley. Okay. I'm... It's about freaks and misfits. And like the breakout character of the year has been nanny of nanny and the orphan maker, which no okay. one would have predicted. <laughs> cool. This yeah. is the one that this is the one I'll get next. Cause I've, that's I've... the one you should get next. It's, it is, it's not, there's not that much of it yet because it cool. started last year and it is hilarious. It's about Psylocke, not Betsy, but Kanon mm. Psylocke and Grey Crow, formerly Scalp Hunter of the Marauders. Really? And Havoc. <laughs> no. And they're leading a, basically a suicide squad of complete fuck ups. You know it's who good. I, you know who I always liked? I liked in the Marauders. Um, um, who's the guy who spins? Riptide. Riptide. I love the guy who spins. Riptide's fun. Again, like a stupid power, but fun. Yeah, love it. He was actually scary though, because he had those ninja stars he would throw out of his little whirlwind. Uh, yeah, there was sweat. There was there was his sweat that would uh, solidify and turn out, if I remember correctly. Love that for him. But anyway, yeah, no, Hellions is the, Hellions is the book you should read. It's cool. very good. He needs a writer who wants to do something different with him. Yeah. I think the problem with a character who has been so. I wouldn't say inconsistently characterized, but so sparingly used. Yeah. It's a little bit of the Polaris problem we discussed last week, which is that apart from Peter David, who wrote her on X Factor for a long time, there are a lot of different takes on the character. And because she hasn't been used a ton since the 60s, much like Toad, consistently, none of the takes are necessarily more valid than any other. Yeah. So you need someone with a vision and Polaris now has a writer who clearly has a vision for the character. So I think that similarly, if you find someone with a vision for Toad, you could do something really interesting with the character. But I don't know what I would want that to be. And I think it's hard with a character whose defining characteristic is that he's a second banana to be like what is the toad's storyline it's more what is a storyline we can put toad in where he serves the storyline you know what i mean yeah also i'm just thinking now that there are probably some really tall trees on krakoa and oh, i yeah. think you need someone who can hop i think that it's would be true. Really he should be hopping he should be doing all kinds of hopping work. I will say, if anyone can make a story reason why someone who can hop is, is the person is vitally needed, necessary for a do mission. whatever you want. I want to see. I, wanna see I how love that, works. that. I love situational powers that become useful. That's why, again, the classic New Mutant stuff is fun because it's like, well, we have a wolf, mm -hmm. a girl who can make images of things you're afraid of, 
a guy who can blast in one direction and someone who can possess guards. What's the storyline we're going to do here? You know, I know like, Bobby, he's strong, but he's not invulnerable. <laughs> so no, like, what are you Roberto's do? not invulnerable. He's just strong. <laughs> also, he's kind of a loose cannon. So like, what are you going to, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's sort of the cannonball. He is the loose cannon. Cannonball himself is not as much of a loose cannon. You just fire him and then he literally is a loose cannon, but he's luckily invulnerable when he's blasting. It so. works. It works. <laughs> Yeah. So that that's sort of what I would say is I think that he uh, I think he does have a tendency towards self-sabotage. And I think that what will define him in this new era is who he chooses to follow because he now has the entire mutant race. He's absolutely spoiled for choice. He can choose to follow whichever path he wants. They're all available to him. But the question is what he will choose. Because he's not someone who starts a movement by himself. Yeah. I'm not caught up, but... So I don't know if this is even how things are, are still are, but, like, him trying to turn to Doug as someone who did help, because that is a very legitimate power source, um, Doug and Krakoa. Yeah. Like, him being like, oh, I want to fit myself into that sort of power structure. Because he is, like, you know... He's not power-hungry. He just likes to be near it, you know? And I think that might be an interesting space to throw him i don't know mm-hmm. i don't know what other questions you got zach wilson writes hello connor and divinely radiant guest while toad's mutation is not maybe as much of a barrier to him interacting with human society as some others it still definitely affects the ways in which he's perceived while you've covered hank kurt raven and megan who all have factors that either hide or mitigate the negative effect of their mutations brains and charm respectively Old Mort doesn't really have anything going for him, quality-wise, than this guy is toad-like. Look at that tongue. Mm -hmm. How much do you think his mutation has affected his general outlook on life and led to his villainy in the past? Thanks so much once again for all your hard work and have a wonderful evening. So when his backstory was presented, he's an orphan who was relentlessly teased because, like Hank and like Megan, he displayed his mutation from birth. So he was already a weird little toad-like guy as a child so his sense of himself as useless or as not deserving of love or affection is born from that so i think it's absolutely central to the character for sure i don't know what do you think about that yeah i mean he he is precisely someone whose mutation has affected how he is seen and how he sees himself and like everything he does is is seemingly a response to the or not everything he does but the position that we find Toad in and where he comes from is all based on that. If he were not a mutant Toad, he would not be this character. I mean, maybe he'd be a still, maybe he'd be a coward who like, maybe he'd work in politics. I don't know. I remember in that arc where the high evolutionary shuts off everyone's mutant powers, he got hot suddenly. And it's like, it's, it's, it's played as a sight gag. And it's like one power. He's just like, the blob is upset that his power is gone. And Toad is like, well, I, for one, think I look great. If, like, I don't get to hop anymore, that's fine. I don't know. This is the central problem with the X-Men that has always been a problem, and it's why the Morlocks were created, right? And it's why Morrison created Mutant Town. The X-Men, who are the leading characters, are all beautiful. Yeah. Even the ones who are freakish, like Nightcrawler, are freakish in a beautiful way. Yeah. There is... A problem structurally with the idea that someone like Toad, I mean, you look at Marrow and they had to make her hot. Yeah. Yeah. As she went on and became an important character, she got hot. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. there's something fucked up about that. Like none of the characters who are unattractive ever really get to be stars. Yeah. Unless it's, you know, like you look at a character like Glob Herman, who's used as a vehicle for pity. Mm-hmm. The kind of pity thing we were talking about. Exactly. But he's not ever going to be the lead of a book. Even when on the Brisson New Mutants, he was pretty prominent. He's never going to be the star. Those characters are always sort of there so that we can say, well, not all mutants are stunningly gorgeous superheroes. Look at these people. But these people are always lower status. Yeah. I mean, Beak is... Beak loses his mutation at some point, right? Isn't he depowered? Yeah, it's complicated, but yes. Um, I've always been a fan of Chamber because of his design. But even Chamber, it's like he's still sexy. Yeah, they make him, they make it alluring, you know? He, yeah. Like, he, sleep, he sleeps with like a pop star and right. a, a storyline I liked a lot as a kid. <laughs> that storyline's hilarious. I, I particularly like that one because she's British and so is he, but like the UK... It's established sort of whenever we peek over there in Marvel Comics that like their attitude toward mutants is different because they don't seem to have as many. So it's just sort of like, well, that's exotic and interesting. You know, like she dates him so that the Daily Mail will pick it up. Like not, you know, and it's not the same context, which I thought was funny. It is something that the books have to face at some point. This fact that the more hideous or grotesque mutants are not marketable as ip in the same way and so are never the stars and i don't know how you deal with it but toad as a lee kirby creation is definitely a character famous enough that you could do something interesting with it and i think that's what wolverine and the x-men was trying to do and and succeeded at to some extent i just didn't like the way that i felt it sort of junked a female character to do it yeah i agree um i'm trying to think of other characters in that same position I mean, Caliban got hot. That, that's the yeah. funniest thing. Like, Apocalypse turned Caliban into a big muscle man. Like, it's weird. None of them are able to... Even Toad got hotter. Yeah. They made over him... Over time. They made him cooler looking, too. I mean, like, they... Yeah. Uh, made, uh, they made him green. Like, now he's distinctive looking. I mean, I still think that there's so much more to be played with with the Morlocks. I've always liked the more Obviously, I've always liked the Morlocks. Um, yeah, I mean, I now that Callisto is a really prominent character at the moment, I think it would be fun to see more of what those characters are up to on Krakoa because the experience of going from Morlocks to Mutant Town to this, it's just, it's a very different life to have now. Yeah, and I think that that is a way to sort of address a lot of this sort of psychological stuff that we Mm -hmm. were talking about before, like how they respond to being in this space while like putting themselves in the sewers or after that experience. I don't know. I think that's an interesting way of playing with a group of characters who I genuinely don't know how they would interact with Krakoa. I'm sure there's been a bunch of them besides Callisto, but I can't think of any. The most we've really seen the Morlocks on Krakoa, we've seen Mask a couple times. Okay. But the biggest thing is in Hellions, the fact that Grey Crow is just hanging out yeah. is something the Morlocks have an issue with. And they've all been resurrected, but they're like, that guy murdered us, though. Remember that? There was a whole massacre. It was a thing. Yeah. yeah. So we see them in that context, but we haven't seen a ton of them. And I will note the ones we see are the ones like Sibylle and Tommy, like the ones that are more 
superhero-y looking, like prettier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As opposed to, you know, Annalie. But I don't know. Because even with the Morlocks, you had characters like Beautiful Dreamer or Skids. Oh, yeah, yeah, you yeah. You know, yeah. where it's like... I mean, Skids, they at least tried to explain it. They were like, well, Mask couldn't fuck up her face because of her force field, so she's still hot. Michael Phillips writes, Hi, Connor. Love the podcast and the chance to hear some great discourse on my favorite fictional gay disasters. My question on Toad is about how over the years, it's become sort of a running joke that he's on the X-Men in peripheral roles. Do you think he'll be elected to the new team? I think editorial-wise, it'd be smart to get a recognizable former bad guy in to show the X-Men represent all Krakoans. However, it is an election, and I can't gauge how popular Toad is in-universe. Personally, I'd rather have Blob on the team. Former baddie, current favorite bartender of Krakoa gives him some plausibility. Also, not for nothing, but with the mustache, he is dad. Sorry for the run-on sentences. I've had a couple beers celebrating the inauguration. Again, love the (laughs) podcast and look forward to it every week. Best, Michael. Well, Lachayim, Michael, this is the first Cerebro of the Biden administration. Mm, it's different. I will say, I mean, listen, I'm not a huge Joe Biden fan, but I feel so euphoric not having Trump be president that it is, I can't possibly express how good that feels. (laughs) Yeah. So now we have other things we have to take care of, but that is a good feeling. Yes. So, I mean, I think, I think Pyro fits into a lot of what he's saying here too and the way pyro is being yeah i just i don't think they're gonna take pyro off the marauders is the thing so if you're not 100 caught up tim like what's happening right now is since house of x powers of 10 there hasn't been a team called the x-men right on krakoa okay and at the end of ten of swords the big event that they just did gene and scott decide in opposition to the quiet council's desires that there needs to be a team of x-men okay they want the X-Men to represent Krakoa as a nation. So they are having the X-Men be democratically elected by the people. Okay. Which is an interesting take. Hmm. Particularly because the Quiet Council is not elected. They're just the people who decided they were in charge. Yeah. To answer your question, I don't think Toad is going to be elected to the X-Men. Yeah, he no. is not a popular person. That's sort of the point of Toad is that he's not popular i do think that there will be a villain on the team because there's a villain on most of the teams in the current era to emphasize the krakoan amnesty and the awkwardness that it's created if i were going to pick like the political parties that are identified as being able to send a candidate to the x-men include bar sinister and the house of m now of course the house of m right now as we've discussed is just eric and lorna hanging out so hopefully that is where Zaladane will make her triumphant reappearance as one of the X-Men. But uh, barring that, I think that Bar Sinister will send a villain, right? Because if you're hanging out with Mr. Sinister, you're a bad guy, usually, typically speaking. What would be interesting to me with Toad is not to have him, I think we've agreed on this, on a team, but to have him in a supporting role somewhere that's interesting. I would like to see him in Way of X, which is Cy Spurrier's new book about Nightcrawler, where Nightcrawler is trying to establish a sort of not literal religion, but like a spiritual way of life for mutants on Krakoa. In their new context, I think he would be a good character for that book because it seems like it's kind of slice of life. And because of the thematic commonalities we've identified between Nightcrawler and Toad. Yeah. And again, on X-Men Evolution, there was a lot of parallelism drawn between them. So I I think that that's a rich mind that you could tap. 
And I think that that's probably where Exodus is going to factor in because of the stuff he's doing with his like little nascent cult. So if Toad is hanging out with him, maybe that's where he's going to pop up. Pop up literally because he's the one who hops. Because this this guy can hop. If this guy can If he can hop, do anything. This guy can hop, okay? He hops so like a madman. So if pop up, it's one letter away. This guy can yeah. do it. I think he's toad in the hole. Jack in the box. <laughs> that would be my thinking. I, I don't think he's meant for a superhero team. I agree. That's why I think the janitor role made sense. I mean, giving him a peripheral role where you're like, this character is important to the history of the X-Men, but is not a starring character. Yeah. Is sensible. I also thought that role played with... If in this world he has familiarity with stranger alien technology, I don't hate the idea of him, of him actually being like a very good worker of technologies and him being a janitor for the X-Men with all this crazy technology going yeah. on. Like, like, oh, no, I I understand what this is doing. Yeah, I, he could I, have a role in Monet and Warren's X-Corp. I, yeah, that makes sense to me. Although, he, you know, they're the hottest mutants that there are. So yeah. that might be not great for his inferiority complex. Hang out with Warren and Monet would make anyone feel ugly. <laughs> but uh, that would be an option, too. I could see him also, again, like I said, you could have him be a, like a technician or a janitor or something on the sword station. Like you could put him up there with Magneto. Yeah, I think leaning into that aspect of him is actually a helpful way to fit him in the spots for then his like personality of, of being a toady to shine. Because then he becomes a sounding board for the starring characters. They can confess their problems to Toad or whatever. Like they make him someone who's around to vent to. The way Hank is used sometimes as like, he's in his lab doing his thing. Yeah, like 90s Hank where he would just pop up for problems mostly. Yeah, he's like, oh, I'm fixing the Blackbird. I'm doing this stuff. You could definitely have Toad like helping Sage out with technical stuff. I mean, it, like it does draw him possibly into this sort of like keyboard warrior incel space that I don't want to see, to, to play with. But it could be fun to play him contra that as more of like a Twitter warrior or something like, yeah. like make him a make him someone who is like a nerd but not in a way that like if if Toad becomes like a Chapo guy that would be funny that's a that's a great idea. Give him a Make lot him like of weird followers Twitter. on social media. Like Toad becomes like a weird Twitter guy. Yeah, and like, and in that way where he's like, I'm not, I'm not an X Men, but I'm with him. You know, like all that, like that. Yeah. Have him blow up on social media and him be consumed by that. <laughs> yeah, I actually, if you're listening, X of it, steal this. Yeah, we yeah, won't yeah. sue. Take this. It's, I think it's good. Yeah, just tag us every once in a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Connor Mulvaney writes, Hello, Connor, an esteemed guest. I'm currently doing a reread through of Claremont's run, in part inspired by your absolute love for that excellent era of X-Men. And I recently read through Uncanny X-Men 145 to 147, the Doom and Arcade plot. There are a few narrative and editorial mentions of Toad's short-lived time on the straight and narrow and his development of Toad World. Now that everyone is living on Krakoa, do you think Toad deserves a second shot at fulfilling his lifelong dream of owning and operating a Toad-themed amusement park? Thanks, love the pod and the presence you've brought to X-Twitter. Well, thank you. Yeah. The so yeah. <laughs> I yes I love Toad World. The answer is yes. If you've forgotten because it's a brief thing in the character file, Toad buys a bunch of equipment from Arcade to try and kill Angel in the seventies, and then sort of realizes he doesn't want to be evil and just repurposes it all to open an amusement park called Toad World. I love that for him. 
Yeah, I great. am totally into Toad World. He should capitalize on his social media fame to open Toad World. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I wouldn't... Or, like, he, do co-sponsor something at an existing amusement park. If he's, like, the ringleader of, like, a circus, I actually think that's a pretty cool use of him. That could be cute, yeah. You know, he's, like, he can uh, warm up the crowd and jump away for someone to do something incredible. Like... One thing, the one thing we haven't seen a ton of yet, and I bet that Way of X is going to touch on it, but, like, Krakoa must be producing a lot of cultural content. There must yeah. be shows movies stuff on social media like toad is a tiktok celebrity would be extremely funny yeah and that all sort of lends itself to like the pt barnum toad world of it all i think yeah yeah make him a showman i think there is something to that and no offense to tim but we did draw this explicit parallel often people who are insecure about themselves in exactly the way that toad is Mm -hmm. find themselves through performance so Mm -hmm. it's just a thought also, it would make Nightcrawler so mad to see Toad. Because Nightcrawler, have always wanted, he's always wanted to be an actor. He always wants to be a showman. To see Toad actually get to fulfill that role it's is like, a great way Toad. of playing that parallel. Yeah. Toad become like, crawl show, but it's Toad show. I think this, now we now we are we, I think we found right it. We we're really, we're, right we're getting the money. Yeah, we're making this happen. <laughs> you know what? Like maybe Toad can be a starring character. Yeah, I, yeah, right. yeah I, agree. I agree. I think maybe we've cracked it. <laughs> yeah, as long as he has an audience, let him do. Let him, he's he can do a lot. He can he oh, he'd have the most annoying YouTube channel. He would edit those. You know you know how the way those are like where they cut edited very like uh the way he, the way those edits come jet around in sort of big name YouTube channels. He could do that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm for it. Now that we've solved Toad, <laughs> is there anything else you want to take some time to talk about before we start to wrap? No, I think we got there. I think we talked about a bunch of the stuff um, I liked about him. I thought we, we delved deep into my own personal feelings and how they connect to identifying with a character like Toad. We uh, played around with his many versions and how they, why they work or when they don't work and what we could do in the future with the guy. And we have referenced repeatedly that this is a guy who can hop. So He certainly can hop. Oh, I do actually, before, I do want to give my, um, my, uh, uh, my Real Housewives. Uh, yeah, token. go ahead. Bring back the game for this one episode because you did have a tagline. I'm hopping mad. So it's very good. But I do feel like my one note is housewives taglines usually have like da 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 okay so it's like there's like there's like a setup and a punchline how about how about i'm hopping mad and i love you master (laughs) (laughs) i think it would be something like i'm always overlooked and i'm hopping mad you know like yeah yeah yeah, you have to kind of like it kind of there has to be like a there's a there's a there's a cadence to it Right, right 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 Thank you for that, though. I think that that's absolutely on point. Toad would be a terrible cast member on The Real Housewives, but I think he would be very good on some other kind of reality programming. I agree. Toad as like an ironic celebrity that people love because he's weird and funny is like a really good... I really think that would be strong. And this is, I mean, honestly, even as like a, I hate to say, but like a Caroline Calloway type where he's just like, he is, <laughs> he is documenting his life and stuff. And people are like, what? Who is this person? You know, Who like is I, this person, right. I, I think we are in the exact sort of media landscape where Toad can thrive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's a big toad in a small pond suddenly. And there, 
I'm a big toad in, in a, a small, small pond. <laughs> I'm sorry. I always love the idea of saying aphorisms or like common things as if they are like wit for the first as time. If, right. Yeah. As if they're genius. Yeah. Like, all cats have nine lives. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Everyone's like, wow. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Wow. Deep. Great thought. Well, thank you for having me. Well, Tim, thank you so much for being my guest. Yes. Why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you online and plug anything and everything you want to plug? Great. You can find me on Twitter at at Timothy Platt or on Instagram at I am King Bozo. You can find me on YouTube at the Timbo T I M B E A U X. I thought that was funny in 2011. Um, and then you can listen to the podcast I'm a cast member of called Rude Tales of Magic. It's a we play Dungeons and Dragons. Um, it's really funny. It's uh, we're telling a fantastic story, in my opinion, um, and it's fun. Um, and anything. I also have an old podcast called Hampton High um, on the Forever Dog Network, and that is a. It's what if a guy like this hosted a podcast with his high school friends? Um, and we're not making new episodes, but it's fun if you like that stuff. A lot of great guests on that one. Yeah, we have some good. We have some great ones. There's a, a Cola Scola's episode is my favorite of that one. Cola's a, um, Cola's a genius. Io Debre is a favorite of um, on that one. Um, so check it out if you like that type of thing. All right. Well, thank you, Tim. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus transcripts of some of the episodes, soon to be more, at Cerebrocast.com, the official landing page for the podcast next week's episode will focus on another character who was often an also ran but who is more prominent than ever now doug ramsey codenamed cypher oh cool so if you have questions <laughs> about cypher or for my guest ex-office editor annalise bissa please write in to cerebrocast at gmail.com i'm excited to get into that next week for now, thank you so much, as always, for your support, and thank you for listening to several hours ostensibly about Toad. <laughs> I hope you had a good time. I think this was a good episode. I I'm, liked uh, it. I'm jazzed about it. Until next time, everybody, bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. <laughs>